Hello, everyone. Another day in paradise. Friday, September 23rd. Uh, just for a little something different. I looked up, I went to that website, this date in history. September 23rd, 1949. Harry Truman announces explosion of the first Soviet atomic bomb, which came to be known as Joe One for Joseph Stalin, or first lightning to the American public. Another day in paradise. Um... I was away for two weeks, and this is now the third day in a row I've done a space. For those of you that didn't listen in last night, it was not recorded because I was in a particularly difficult uh, or irritable mood. I couldn't take it anymore. Uh, our good friend Tom Thornton's in the room, and he can weigh in. He was uh, Tommy was uh, a big part of that room. I just went off last night because I, I just wanted to put my fist through the television set, listening to all these talking heads, like they're just waking up to what's going on. And I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I went on a rant and Tommy actually said I was, I was actually, I was, it was well justified. Um, and then today I had a bunch of people, you know, DMing me, are we going to do markets and turmoil time for another space? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I mean, I just, I, I wanted to scream. Oh, because Goldman Sachs is now cutting their estimates. They think there's downside in the market of 5%. Like, have these guys not been in our spaces? Like, what is wrong with these people? I don't care if it's Julian, who's going to be talking in a little bit. It's John Roke. It's Tom Thornton. Jim Bianco's going to be in here later. Garbaz, KFAB, I'm just going down the list here. Nikoski, Albert Saporta. I mean, it, come on. It's like, where have these people been? Wake up, people. And actually, you know, I'm going off in a rant here. I'm spitting glass again. But I had a conversation today with someone at a big mutual fund house. And, and you know, you just look at the funds flow data. I don't know where Shrub is. The, 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 the complacency is ridiculous. Yeah, the VIX is up and it's hardly up. It's like the, the frogs are just sitting there in the pot and the, and, the, and, and the temperature's being turned up. And you want to see volatility. You ain't seen nothing yet. When these When these frogs try to jump out of the pot, there's not going to be any bid. So the party's just getting started. Spreads are starting to move. This is going to get good. We've got a situation here. All right, we got a great room in store today. we got John Roke, Julian Brigden, Jim Bianco. Those are the scheduled speakers. And, of course, my good friend Tom Thornton, who I may ask to co-host here. Um, I know John has a time constraint. So Julian, if you don't mind, we're going to uh, turn the floor over uh, to John. John and I share a love of sports. Um, and, and John, I, I think you owe an explanation. People, I got, just so you know, you're a troublemaker, Roke. I got messages from people like, what is this Kareem Abdul-Pal thing? So that's a good place to start. And so I bring you the voice of God, John Roke. Welcome, John. Thanks, George. I promise I'm not the voice of God. That was John Facenda, who used to narrate the old NFL films uh, from the Sables. So I'm just going to start there. You know, some weeks ago, I sent out a note. It was in late August entitled The Voice of God. And in it, I just imagined that if John Facenda were actually narrating the market, he would have said there's only one narrative out there. And the narrative is, is that inve investors believe too fervently that the Fed will pivot. And so I thought that was the voice of God. And I thought, you know, that that narrative was going to be wrong. And I thought when... Powell gave his Jackson Hole speech. I thought he was like Popeye, who had finally eaten his spinach. 
Prior to that, he was being walked all over by Bluto and, of course, olive oil because she could get him to do anything she wanted. And then after eating his spinach, I thought he had really kind of stuck a, um, you know, the flag in the ground. And then, you know, I'm going to cuff Robert McTeer's line because Powell finally now understands that only hawks go to central bank heaven, central bank or heaven. And then uh, it was yesterday that I sent out a client note entitled Kareem Abdul Powell. And because I thought that Powell again, um, you know, when, when he again replanted the flag, he reminded me of Jabbar who was planted himself on the block with his back to the basket. He receives the ball from the passer and while not moving his pivot foot, because everybody thought the market was, uh, the Fed was going to pivot, he made a, uh, a quarter turn to his left, as Jabbar always did, raised the ball high over his, head, uh, over his head with his right hand to shoot the most beautiful shot in basketball history. And as he did that, the street defenders who wanted to come out with that whole narrative-changing uh, mantra, they couldn't do anything. And so that's why I thought that Powell was like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. The defenders were helpless against that great sky hook that Jabbar used to shoot over everybody as he went uh, on a quarter turn to his left. So that's how I came to use um, Powell as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But prior to that, John Facenda was the voice of God, and then Powell had become Popeye because he finally ate his spinach. So, John, I don't know. Um, our mutual friend Julian Brigden may re need some remedial education in American sports. I, I guess we can dispatch Thornton to take care of that later. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, John, now that we've gone beyond that, um, so – you know, I, you, you had a great uh, deck out there. I heard your presentation this morning. Wonderful. I might put up a couple charts um, for Thank the crowd. You. But, like, where you know, you've been very consistent uh, looking at the bigger structure of the market and, and, and been very clear on, you know, you thought there was downside to the, to, to the low 3,000s. And, um, you know, there's and, and you've really been very, very unambiguous. And, and, you know, we had this counter trend rally over the summer. I love to always cite your um, recounting of uh, the 2000, 2002 bear market where, you know, NASDAQ, for those that don't remember, but John, I've got to commit to memory, um, you know, market, the NASDAQ down 80%, but 47% of the days the market was actually up. And if I recall correctly, 15% of the, there were 15 rallies over 10%, uh, 10 counter trend rallies over 15%. And um, John, you'll remember, it seems like it was yesterday, we did that, uh, that uh, 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 keynote speech uh, at the CMT conference at the end of April. And you had that great chart and share in there about the bond market being undefeated. And I remember, and, and I want you to come on to that in your remarks, but I remember um, uh, pointing to that as well and saying, well, you know, looks to me like the trend line um, maybe has broken. And you said, yeah, it's possible. It's a little bit early. But I think the fixed income market is a good place to start. Um and you, again, at a consensus, um, you know, you were calling yields to three when they were like two. And then as we got closer to three, you said they're going to go to four, starting on the 10-year. So maybe just start with credit, the two-year, the 10-year, because everything revolves around that. Uh, so, so maybe just start with your views on what's things going on with the bond market. And then in turn, what do equities look like to you? Okay, so um, thanks, George. And so today uh, we had a webinar for my firm and and one of the slides that I showed, I, I just asked, asked some questions and there was no chart on it. And I said, 
Isn't it odd to you that the Treasury bonds keep getting sold when the odds of a recession continue to rise? And the S&P and NASDAQ are close to breaking their June lows. And then I asked, again, is it a liquidity issue? Is it a one-way flow path of least resistance issue? Is it algo machine selling? Is it something worse? Now, of course, those are all rhetorical. I don't have the answers, but here goes. So I've concentrated over the last week or so on the 12-month Treasury uh, yield. And I looked at the chart a lot. And you know what it's like looking at a movie for the 100th time? And then you finally, in the 101st viewing, see something you've never seen before. And so if you take a look at the Treasury yield for 12 months and you go back to the late 50s and you take the average for it from the late 50s to 2008, you realize that the average is 6.25%. And I just said to myself on the 12-month or one-year Treasury bill, what are the odds if we're in a reversion to the mean business that, they can, that this can get back to that 6% rough, rough area? And then, of course, I believe firmly that we're not in a reversion to the mean business because the only way you get the mean is to get above and below that figure. If you look at the back of anybody's baseball card, you'll realize they never batted their lifetime average. They had to bat around their lifetime average. So that's the first thing on the 12 month uh, um, Treasury yield. And then a second one, of course, we know on the two year, the Fed follows the two year. Julian Brigden will do a better job uh, on me uh, than I can do on this ever. And I thought that the two-year could get to 5%, which is not really crazy because if you go back in time, that's kind of where it was in 2005, 6, or 7. So I think it can get to that level. And the 10-year Treasury yield, my figure has been 4%, and we're not there yet, so I'll just leave it alone. But then George mentioned a chart that I've used for a long time, and it's the Treasury yield for the 10-year going back to 1970. And I had the good fortune to spend four years at Soros Fund Management. I spent a lot of, spent a lot of time with Robert Soros, who was always a gentleman to me. And I just want to say the following. I don't know Mr. Soros Sr., so please, no questions. Um, I, I'm, I'm kidding, of course, I don't, but I don't know him. So I, I, I don't have anything to say other than what's already publicly available. But Robert said to me something that I'll never forget because I wrote it down and I kept it in a file. And he said to me, John, the bond market never lies. And now the 10-year treasury is undefeated. It is the undisputed and undefeated champion for the 15th time. And George might be kind enough to put up the chart because the, uh, the chart will delineate each of the periods and what broke during each of those periods. And so I think we're in the breaking period here in this everything bear. And um, I think we finally got the last piece of the uh, bear market puzzle as credit spreads have started to really rally. And I think, again, I'm going to turn that over to, to Julian because he'll do, again, a much better job than I ever will. But the credit spreads have historically, when you get a high yield, yield to worse spread versus the 10-year treasury, when that gets above 6%, something breaks. Just like when you get the 12-month uh, rate of change for the U.S. dollar up as strongly as it is now back to the early 80s, something breaks. And so you have all these items there that suggest that we should be breaking. So I think ultimately we have to break 3,600 or 3,636. Uh, 3,600 was my original target um, going back to uh, late last year, early this year. And I think we have to break below that figure. And then my thesis was really that the market would get back to 3,350, 3,400 on the S&P because that was roughly the pre-COVID high from 2018 and the post-COVID breakout level. And so I don't think the bear market's over. I think it continues. 
And I still think there's an awful lot of complacency here. I know that we should be thinking about buying. I, I really do know that because there are no buys. And when there are no buys, you should be thinking about buying. And I would suspect that we'll probably have over 1,000 new lows on the New York Stock Exchange today. And there were 1,092 new lows on or around June 16th. So I think we have to really get above there to kind of evince some sort of you know, panic. But with the VIX not really breaking out, I don't necessarily think that there's tremendous panic here. And uh, I also included a chart uh, in my packet this morning, and I, I'm not really big on analogs, but I showed the chart of the S&P from 1970 through 1974, and I was particularly focused on what happened from January 11th, 1973, through the low September 13th of 1974. The first leg down in the bear market, the S&P dropped 16% over 155 days. It then rallied 50%, a 50% retracement. It had a 50% retracement of what it lost. And then it went down another 41% thereafter. We've had a 50% retracement um, and plus. So I don't necessarily want to say that this is like that period, but I put it in there just to say that we should be aware that these things can happen to us. John, that's... Um pretty bold words but you've been very consistent you're you've been in these rooms and everyone knows your views we're very uh, in, indebted to you um against street consensus um let me ask you a slightly different question it's a question i always ask you and i ask others and it's not so much what is your view but what's your conviction level your confidence level it's like you know in in sports whether it's basketball or let's take basketball because you and i are hoops fans now are you feeling it i mean seems to me like you are feeling it. you are in the zone so it's not just what is your view, but, you know, your conviction around your view. And so a lot of times I think the, the conviction level is more important than the view itself. Um, but, you know, you got to take the, the pitches that Mr. Market throws at you. So uh, I think I know the answer to the question, but how would you say in the continuum of low conviction, high conviction, are you feeling it right now? So I, I don't want to go overboard here and be too hyperbolic, um, but I, 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 I want to put it to you like this. You know, um, today, everybody got up in arms about the way uh, the sterling dollar moved. But the sterling dollar has been in a bear market for, for some time. When uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, people got up in arms about what the energy uh, complex was doing as that happened and afterward. And energy had been in a bull market well before that. So while I still have high conviction, my conviction has been high for some time. And I think it has been high because you've had you know, um, several items kind of fall in line like dominoes to help you with that conviction. In fact, I said to a friend of mine today that I know since the mid 90s in the business and we talk every single day, I said to him, you know, if you'd gone away several months ago and not listened to all of the news media and, you know, all the people who were kind of fighting your argument, you might have said to yourself, this was kind of an easy call. You had a top in the internals in the NYSE and NASDAQ a long time ago. You had yields bottoming and rising. You had inflation moving sharply higher. And the only people who weren't paying attention to inflation were Federal Reserve PhDs and other central bank PhDs. You had oil sharply higher. If you put all those things together, you would have said to yourself, my goodness, these things usually result in a bear market. And in fact, 
they did result in an internal bear market that's been going on for some time. And so I think the only thing that really hadn't joined in that were the big stocks that, you know, I might call the big seven. But except for really Tesla and Apple, who are holding up better than the other big seven, you know, I don't want to sound too much like a jerk here because if my sister's listening, she'll tell me. Um, but I thought this wasn't so difficult uh, a thing to, to to make a call on because the internals showed you that they were coming at you one at a time. I mean, just to give you an idea, the 10-day moving average of new highs for the New York Stock Exchange peaked in the, in the spring of 2021. The 10-day moving average of new highs for NASDAQ peaked in February of 2021. So the market internals had been deteriorating for a long time. And then you started to get the other things, the rate moves, the uh, oil, the dollar, and so I, and inflation. So I, I thought the conviction was uh, allowed me for those items, allowed my conviction to be high. And I think my conviction is still high. Of course, it's difficult to press now, but when you're in a bear market, it goes much further than you believe. Yeah. I mean, John, I, I unfortunately, uh, I agree with uh, pretty much everything you just said. Um, the complacency, uh, the lack of uh, you, you look at all the, the, the public, the you know trillion plus they put in the market, selling, um, and then look at institutional uh, data. Everyone likes to point how hedge funds have de-risked. Yes, it is true that their risk is down, their their, their net exposure is down appreciably from where it's been in the last few years. But if you, and I'm just going to pick on it's the Goldman data. They show their book shows. 47% net long. Um, yes, that's true compared to the last few years. But if you go back, but that's, that's a period of time where you had, you know, the most distorted financial asset prices in history. And instead, if we go back to, you know, the last dozen years, 47% really isn't so low. And so if 47% is the new, is the new norm, I think there's still selling to come there. Um, the public, they've, they've hardly sold at all. Um, and given the lack of liquidity in the market, um, just I, I perish the thought. I mean, one other thing I'll, I'll put out to you, John, and your reaction. And I was having this discussion with uh, with, with another smart cookie uh, this morning. I'm not in front of my screen, but from memory, the uh, ten year. This will be something Julian can speak on later. The ten year was three oh five. Uh, the um, uh, uh, sorry. Let me let me back up. Let me back up. On the close of business of August twenty fifth, the day before Jackson Hole. Uh, the S&P was, I believe, uh, 414 or 413, some number like that. We're at 365 as of a few minutes ago. Um, the the, the uh, S&P has fallen 13% since August 25th. For $50 in double jeopardy, normally if I'd ask anybody, the market's down 13%. What do you think the bond market has done? You'd say, oh, well, yields have to have gone down. It's, that's you know from where the 60-40 uh, model comes from. But in the brave new world that we live in, and, and we're going to we'll get to the whys on this. We'll have Julian speak on it once. I know John, you've got a hard stop. If someone said to you, "Yeah, the market's down thirteen percent," but guess what? Yields in that period of time went from uh, three hundred four to uh, three seventy. You'd be like, "What? That's got to be a typo." And so, you know, normally the relief valve that you would get from uh, declining stock prices would be a rally in bonds. You're not getting it. As a matter of fact, the reason stocks are going down is because bonds are going down. So um, what do you it's all a way of asking you, John, a long winded way of saying, what do you need to see for everyone in the room? Um, you know, it's easy to pile on now. The past of least resistance is going to go down. 
But what should we be looking for? What should the average person be looking for to get a sense that maybe things are, you know, you might want to think about buying something, whether it's you're looking for the dollar to peak out, um, uh, the yen to bottom, bond yields to start to roll over, maybe advanced decline line starts to not be so bad. I mean, what sorts of things should you be looking for? What's on your checklist that you want to look for um, to say that we're somewhere near a local bottom? Well, I think first off, um, I, I just want to say uh, two things before I answer your question. Number one is I saw this chart. It's not mine. It comes from Goldman. But in the first half of 2022, net U.S. equity demand, uh, it was led by corporations and then households, mutual funds, foreign investors, other and life insurance were all sellers. That's number one. And uh, so number two is I, I think that we haven't yet seen um, a bottom in technology stocks in particular because the name funds, you know them as well as I do, that usually provide the um, the fund flows for these stocks when they do correct sharply, they're not buying them. They've suffered some of the biggest losses, and we still don't know what they've suffered on the private side. And then to answer your question, I would like to see, number one, the dollar weaken. That's the first thing, number one. Number two is, just to give you an idea, in in, in uh, 2020, at the COVID low, there was almost 2,400 NYSE new lows on that day. And then for NASDAQ, there are around 2,100 new lows. We haven't yet approached that. Now, I know that history never repeats in detail, but if we can get new low figures on a daily basis, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, that would kind of approach what occurred at the COVID lows, I'd say, yeah, we're probably pretty washed out. So I'd look for the dollar to show some weakness, and I'd look for the number of new lows to really explode and get back to where they were or close to where they were at the COVID lows. We're certainly not going to see any new highs for a long time, but those two items would certainly help me uh, and I think help a lot of listeners um, if they're trying to figure out when the market is going to kind of run out of gas, so to speak, on the downside. I would like to add the following, George, if I can. I think while we're all paying close attention to what the major indexes are doing, I think it's important to consider what is actually transpiring within the market's ever-changing structure. Number one is, is that it looks like NASDAQ uh, has peaked relative to the S&P, uh, if you're doing relative ratios, and that the S&P is now in an outperformance cycle versus NASDAQ. That's number one. Number two is NASDAQ has peaked relative to the Dow. So NASDAQ will out underperform the Dow. And then the third one is, is that I think that small cap will outperform big. And of course, non-growth will outperform growth. So while we're all paying attention to the you know, major averages, because you know, everything we do is kind of mark to market based on that, I just wanted to mention that these other items are occurring beneath the surface that I think investors should be paying attention to. Um, you had gone out of your way and it really had pointed out that um, the technology weighting, I remember this earlier in the year, is vastly understated because of the reclassification of certain names like, you know, Amazon's a retail stock, Netflix is a communication stock, blah, blah, blah. And I think if I recall correctly, the way you calculated earlier in the year, tech had gotten up to, I want to say it was like 44% of the index or something like that. Um, where is that number now by your lights? And, you know, for context, you know, where was it and where do you think it could go? Because I agree with you. I think tech has made a secular peak 
So maybe I think people we really throw people back on their heels if if they hear the stats on just you know properly calculated. What is Tex weighting in the index right now, John? Okay, George, I'm, I, I don't. It, it was forty percent at the beginning of the year, and I thought that was way too high. And the S and P has it wrong. So uh, I'm going to have to update it because I didn't do it in the last week. But I will give you the following: um, the top five weighted stocks in the S and P are now twenty two percent. Uh, of the index. They were 21% at the end of 2021. They were 20% at the end of 2020, and they were 15 and percent at the end of 2019. And the top 10 weighted stocks are 28 and percent, which is the exact weighting that they were at the end of 2021. And they were 26 and percent at the end of 2020 and 22.4% at the end of 2019. So the top 10 weighted stocks show no growth, uh, market cap growth relative to where they were at the end of 2021. And the plurality for the top five is coming in. So it was bigger than 22% and it's come down to now uh, at 22%. Thanks, John. Um, uh, let's, let's um, if uh, Tom, you know, our good mutual friend, Tommy Thornton, and then Mark knew if you got any questions for John, because otherwise John told me he only had a half hour or so. Um, I want to let John get on his merry way, but Tommy, you got any questions for John or Mark? You got any questions for John? All right. Here I do. Are. I do, George. I do have one. Go for it. Yeah. So John, always, a, always an honor to, to, to hear your voice. Hi, Tommy. Talk Thanks. To you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Good it's actually Mark here, but that's cool. Oh, um, hey, Mark. Uh, so, good to hear your voice. Hey, good to see you. So a couple things I wanted to add. Your, um, your observation on the S&P and the weightings is super pertinent and awesome. I also wanted to add the cues. Right. Those top five are 42 percent, those big five. And then the ESGU, ESGV, BlackRock, Vanguard, ESG funds are 21, 22 percent, about matching the spy. And I wanted to ask you this, John, because I look at Google down 32 year to date, Amazon down 32 year to date, Softy down 20, 30, 29. That's in line with the Q's down about 30. So I see Apple only down 15 and Tesla. Sorry, George, to mention it, but it's only down 22. Those to me are sort of the last, well, Apple, everybody owns and Tesla is everyone's favorite to crush and whatever. As we talk about into fiscal year end and the mutual funds are October 31, most of them, how do you feel Apple, Tesla holding up here versus those other three I mentioned, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, Google and their relative weightings? Would it be fair to say, do you think it's okay to say Apple and Tesla really compared to the others have not gotten beaten down? like the big ones. Uh, sorry, like the other three, excuse me. I wondered your thoughts on that sort of disparity. Yeah, so I, 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 you're absolutely right, Mark. The, Apple and Tesla have held up much better than the others in the big seven. Um, and, and, and I do think, however, that Apple is topping, and I do think that Tesla is also topping. And I'm going to use the word cult, not because it's a David Koresh kind of thing or a Jim Jones kind of thing, but I think both stocks are cult-like. And um, I had a friend of mine who's a lawyer text me today and said, you know, quite plainly, Apple's on sale here at 150. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't reply to him. I, I should have said, you know, I think you'll be able to buy it at 130. But I think Apple is slowly topping. And if all you had for Apple was its weekly or monthly chart, I, I think you'd be a seller. And I think Tesla is also topping. I just think that they're kind of the last ones to come in. Maybe they're the last emperors in this in this uh, era, I, I always thought that Microsoft was the last emperor, um, you know, prior to this. But I think these are the last emperors. And I don't see why Tesla doesn't get back down to 200. 
the top of the range really was kind of, you know, 300, maybe 350. And I think the bottom of the range is 200. And just to add one more thing to your weighting um, calculation that you did earlier, I also keep uh, or maintain the semis market cap weight within the NDX. And through today's close, the semis now account for 7.6% of the NDX. That's down from 13% at the end of 2021. And just to give you an idea, it is now at its lowest level, at least going back before 2018, because 2018, they accounted for almost 10.5%. So it's 7.6% down almost, you know, 50% um, from, uh, from what it was at the end of 2021. So that's what the semis have done. And John, one more thing. How does your crystal ball look at the year end, both mutual fund? Uh, fiscal 1031 likely, uh, sorry, here. and towards the end of the year, I mean, this has to set up as one of the most challenging tax law selling seasons in forever. I don't know, two decades. Yeah, I, 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 Mark, I, I try not to think of things in that, in that way. I, I don't think I'm that good at, at, uh, at trying to, you know, kind of game that situation. I'd rather kind of try to figure it out by looking at the charts. And if the charts tell me anything, it tells me that it's likely to kind of continue to be a difficult period. But I think it's too hard for me to add anything uh, to really answer your question. Okay. I appreciate that all. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. All right, I'm now going to turn to Mr. Thornton. Tommy, uh, if you have a question for John, here's your shot, our good mutual friend. If not, I'm going to let you introduce uh, our good mutual friend, Julian Brigden. So, Tommy, take it away. Okay. Well, I'd just like to say hello to everyone. Um, hope everyone uh, will enjoy this weekend. It's been uh, quite the week, month, and year, obviously. Um, hey, John, nice to uh, chat with you. Great Hi, points. Um, Thanks. A couple thoughts or qu questions. What, what, what time frame are you thinking for some of your lows that you've put out there? And what, what type of oversold conditions would get you to turn a little bit more constructive? That's all. Okay. All right. So I'm going to answer your question uh, in, in two ways. The first way is, if you just look at an S&P 500 uh, using a, uh, a, a regular MACD on a monthly basis, just regular, um, it's not oversold. And weekly is tremendously oversold. Of course, we know daily is, but the monthly is still not oversold. That's number one. If you convert that, uh, that arithmetic MACD into what is called a percentage MACD, um, the S&P got as oversold in this down cycle as it did in the COVID low. However, it started from a much higher level than the, pro than the peak was prior to the COVID low. So you'll understand that because you'll envision it in your mind's eye. Uh, we came down and retested the COVID low in this percentage MACD, but um, we came from a much higher level. So I almost think that you have to get to a lower level. That's number one. Number two is, is that while this has been a difficult bear market, July 1970, that low uh, was lower and that bear market was worse. October 74, you were much lower on this particular indicator and that bear market was worse. December 87, you were lower. And then, of course, April 2001 and then August and October 02, you were lower. And then December 08 and March 09, you were much lower. That's the lowest readings I've ever gotten on this uh, percentage MACD. Um, so we're not close to any of those real, I would call them cycle 
lows. We're not anywhere near those. And so I think this is going to continue to be that way. Um, and um, so I don't think we're oversold on a monthly basis yet. And that's why I think it's going to be hard for me to be more, um, you know, let's call it sanguine on what's going on here. And I don't know, Tom, that I have a time frame, but I do think 3636 uh, is going to break in the fall, in the autumn. And then it probably sets us up for some sort of a rally uh, in the fourth quarter. Okay. Sounds good. That was actually really helpful. So, um, uh, George, do you want me to introduce Julian? Yeah, John, hey, thanks okay, so John, much. thank you. Yeah, John, it's always great. You do such help everybody. It's wonderful. You're a real mensch. I'm going to throw it right back at you. Um, and it, 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 you know, everyone, everyone loves hearing you, so please come back, come back often. And by the way, I did put, the, if you see it up in the nest, everyone's interested, the first four slides you were referencing, John. So thanks again, and Thank have you. a great week, and I'll, I'll catch you up too. to you. All right, so so Tommy, um, I'm going to allow you the honor to introduce Julian. Um, and uh, for those of you that don't know him, so Tommy, take it away. Well, I'm really, um, I'm, I'm always honored when Julian and I get a chance to chat. Um, I just feel like I have to like squeeze my brain like a sponge and let all of the knowledge and historical um, stuff that Julian knows absorb into my brain and i think that's kind of what everyone's going to get right now there's been nobody better uh as far as calling the inflation uh the overall market uh dynamics and he's put it into such historical context uh going back into the 60s and the 70s and what's happened uh, especially with some political uh ramifications so I, I just um, I think it's uh, great that we have you, Julian. Thank you um, for joining us today on Friday, and uh, I'll let you I'll let you go. And, 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 and Julian, don't let it go to your head, but I'm going to blow you up even more. Uh, if you recall, we, you were in the space a few months ago. I remember talking yep. there. You nailed this. This was still when the transitory crowd was in full, you know, full mansplaining mode and. You like wanted to shoot yourself in the head. I wanted to shoot myself in the head. You completely <laughs> nailed it. And so, Julian, you got a tough act, a tough act to follow. That is yourself. So, I'm very keen to hear the update, updates. So have at it, Julian. Thank you, thank, thanks, George and, and Tommy. I don't know whether I deserve any of this, mate. This is where I probably end up cocking it all up. But um, look, I, I, I think. It, there's a time, and it was very interesting to just listen to what was said, where we, a lot of us, particularly those who are professionally focused, and I would imagine a lot of people on this phone call, because you're obviously very interested in the space, tend to become too myopically focused on the here and now. And you need to step back and, and look at things from a more holistic, bigger picture perspective. And so when you do do that... Um, the picture is pretty, pretty worrying um, on, on many, on many little, different levels. Now, when it comes to the inflation story, really from early June, we started to shift our focus uh, away from headline inflation. Um, headline inflation in the United States has been driven by, not by energy, which is when, you know, all these guys were getting very excited. You know, they've done it twice. They did it at the beginning of the year. We kind of got a little caught on that one. 
um, but also uh, back in over the summer, the inflation was peaking, and so obviously peak Fed and uh, you know the pivot, right? And what they didn't understand is that really peak inflation wasn't so much a function of energy prices, and it used to be. I mean, I, I had a model that worked. I'm enabled me to catch the bond market, bear market that we had in 2016 into sort of early 2018. Um, and it worked like a dream. And then in October, November of 2021, it broke down completely. It didn't work at all. And you're sitting there scratching your head as to go, what was going on. And then, actually, in fact, what started to work were all the PMI pricing-based models. And it struck me that what was really going on, which is why to some extent this has been very frustrating for the bears, is that courtesy of this inordinately large fiscal and monetary stimulus that on a that was on a scale of five times greater than anything that we've seen in the post-war period, US corporations were fighting desperately to maintain margins. And courtesy of the excess demand created by the fiscal stimulus, they were able to do it. Okay? They were able to do it. So really what the Fed is in a fight with uh, and this is where it gets interesting because everyone said, oh, this can't be the 1970s again because unions have got no pricing power. But they're actually this time not in a fight with the unions, they're in a fight with corporate US Inc. Because when you look at the United States, and those of you who have ever bought a bloody appliance in this country and have ever had experience of buying one anywhere else in the world, will know that this is not a free economy. This is an economy monopolized and oligopolized by a handful of players in each space. There is no other developed country in the world that I know where if you go and try and buy a refrigerator, you have to pay MSRP. Right? Every single dealer in every other country will do your deal. I mean, in Europe, they'll take you to court if you try and rig that sort of market, but not in the US. So the stimulus compared with the pricing power and the monopolistic and oligopolistic power of US corporations has enabled them to push through inflation and keep prices going. Now, is that, does that mean it doesn't peak? No, it does. And typically, when inflation peaks, it peaks, right? It kind of looks like a mountain range. You have sharp peaks, and then it drops, and then it bases in a valley, and then it reaccelerates. So as we sit here, we've got peak inflation. I think we've seen those. I think we'll probably continue to see headline inflation come down. But the problem is, and this is what Powell has been desperately keen to tell people, and, you know, he isn't, uh, they aren't the Bank of England, right? So they can't come out and like Andrew Bailey did and said, oh, you're just about to have the worst recession in post-war history. Can't imagine that ever coming out of the mouth of a, of a Fed president. Um, but essentially, um, He's told you that he needs that this is no longer an issue of headline inflation. This is an issue of right-sizing the labor market. Why is that an issue? Well, if you go and look at the U.S. labor market and you aggregate the statistics, a broad metric of U.S. strength, labor market strength, right? Because it can be a function of how many hours people are working, how much they're earning an hour, and also how many people in total. You can come up with a metric which is a damn good proxy for nominal GDP. And it's growing at about 9 to 10%, depending on which cohort of the labor market you start to look at. Now, 
that may be fine, you say. Okay, so 9% doesn't sound, you know, phenomenal GDP. Well, that's twice, twice, ladies and gentlemen, anything that we've seen in the preceding decade. We are not an emerging market. We don't grow at 10%. Okay? And then the bulls would say, oh, yeah, but if peak inflation's dropping. Okay? I'm not denying that. I'm saying it. I think that's probably the case. So they'll say, well, you know, of that, let's say 10% for ease of calculation nominal GDP, uh, you know, nine was inflation, one was real GDP. You can go to a mix where you have 5% inflation and 5% real. That'd be great. It'd be great for corporate profits. Everything would be fine. And my response would be, how the hell do we have 5% real GDP growth in an environment of 3.7% unemployment? It's physically impossible. We're already trying to hire too many people. We already can't find jobs. You know, we already can't find the employees. Now, it's getting a little better on the margin because things are beginning to slow. But the point is, is you can't have this mix. So the Fed needs to slow nominal GDP. And the way that they have to do it is they have to take the labor market down. Now, the second problem, and I talked about this on the last presentation, was the way that the labor market and the equity market are inexorably connected. And this is through a function that I call hyper-financialization. Hyper and this feedback loop works because we have established a system where corporate CEOs and corporate CFOs are not remunerated to do anything but to be shepherds of their equity price. Up until recently, they weren't even remunerated to make or incentivized to make money. In fact, making money was bad. Right? You just wanted momentum in your stock. And if you, had, if you were making money, you weren't creating maximum momentum. And the function of that is, and the fallout of that is, the minute that the equity price stops going up and starts going down, and we can see it with corporate layoffs, particularly in the tech sector, is CEOs run for the cost-cutting acts, and they start to cut employment and capex. So essentially, if the Fed which is what Jay Powell has said, wants to right-size the labor market. And he's put it as carefully as he can without telling you that he's going to materially increase unemployment. He's going to say we're going to see some pain. He has to drive the equity market down. How low? Well, if the correlations hold to things like jolts and to claims, probably back to pre-COVID lows. It's about... 3,000, low 3,000s, give or take. So that's why I kind of think we are. That's why, because if you don't get those things slowing down, you're not going to get nominal GDP down. You're not going to get that inflation down. Your core inflation is going to become embedded. And for those of you who don't think that we've got uh, core inflation and wages and, and some sort of unionization pressures, I will just relay a little uh, anecdote that I had. And I was sitting in a bar the other day, chatting to a barman I know, and uh, he is also cabin crew on Southwest. And I said to him, I said, uh, so how is your summer? And he said, oh, it's a total bloody disaster. You know, the schedule is still over the place. The whole thing's still a mess. The good news is we have our pay negotiations coming up. And I said, oh, you know, you should go for the same sort of deal that the railway unions got given by the Biden administration, you know, 24, 25%. He goes, oh, that's not enough. We're going for 30. 
Because he said, we know demand's off the charts. They've got no choice. They can't find people. And this guy who's a barman recounted, well, inflation's 9%. And if you, even if you assume it comes down, then the next big negotiation we get is in another three years. And this is what we've got to have. And he knew all the calculations off the top of his head, George. So the Fed has to drive the labor market down. Now, the problem with that is labor actually is a very funny metric. If you've ever looked at uh, total unemployment in the U.S. on a chart, you will see that it trends up almost steadily. It trends down almost steadily. Then it has periods where it bases and sort of flatlines-ish. But when it starts to lose momentum and unemployment starts to rise, Unless the Fed comes in and pivots and re-stimulates the economy, and in other words, punts the cycle, it will inexorably and inexorably rise. Right? It literally is that a job loss begets another job loss begets another job loss. And I will tell you now that if you could look at the 12-month moving average of unemployment, now currently is at 3.9%, so 0.2 above where we are, that historically, with the exception of 1967, I think, every time we have crossed that 12-month moving average, unless the Fed punts that cycle, which is inconceivable right here, right now, you have gone into a recession. And I haven't even started about talking about the housing market, which, oh my God, looks like a bust along the lines that we saw in the mid-70s, the early 80s, and the early 90s. So we could talk about the market, George. I've got some views on the market. I'm very worried. I think I've discovered what could be the thing that could drag down the individual investor holders, finally cause that capitulation, and it's not what I thought. Um, or we can, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions you guys have got. Let me start with a question, and then I'm sure Tommy's got questions. And uh, if anyone has a question, please raise your hand. Um, so maybe it's not exactly what you're referring to, what's going to get the individual investor to come out of the market, but a similar question. We've done a couple of these spaces in recent days, and you heard the line, you know, it's from passing now that, you know, the Fed will raise rates until they break something. Yep. So it's become a sport to try to figure out what that thing is. <laughs> yeah, yep. And the other day, the man to your right, Mr. Newman, is a summa cum laude graduate of uh, the Japanese bear market. I first met Mark 30 years ago when he was broken Japanese equities sitting in Tokyo. And, you know, I was a, I, I kind of, I was pos I was pointing out to people that, you know, in this cycle, it's really the public sector where you've had the debt accumulation, uh, not so much the private sector. I mean, private sector is no, no, no great chance to get me wrong. But the way the fiscal balance has been blowing out and we were trying to figure, you know, it, it, it almost doesn't matter in the end. You know, APR, it's hard to figure out, you know, what is it that's going to blow? But everyone yep. likes to try to call it ahead of time. And Newman chimed in. He goes, yeah, well, what about Japan? And, you know, they've got this yield curve control thing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there have been a lot of calculations made recently um, about what's happening to interest expense you know, for the U.S. government now as debt reprices and rolls off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So maybe it's not what you were alluding to about what's going to the trigger that's going to get individuals to panic. But if you ascribe to the view that rates will rise until something breaks, mm-hmm. if you had to speculate what that thing that's going to break might be, what sort of comes to mind? Uh, well, if you go back and look, and you know, I've I have a chart which I call my dollar crisis chart, and if you look at it, there's been a myriad of different kind of things. So you had, you know, one of the things that caused this thing to peak, and typically when it peaks, it means that the Fed has backed off. So in uh, 81, it was a 25% drop in the S&P. In 83, it was a Mexico default. In 85, it was Plaza. Uh, in uh, 97, it was uh, a 98. It was Russian debt crisis, emerging market debt crisis, then LTCM and the US equity crash. Then it was a global financial crisis. Then it was China's devaluation in 2015 and an ERM crisis. So it's either either typically some sort of ERME kind of crisis or it's U.S. equities. My gut, George, is it's going to be U.S. equities because I look round there and where's the bubble? U.S. equities. U.S. equities. Still U.S. equities. Despite the sell-off, still U.S. equities. You know, if you go and look at the S&P versus the rest of the world, you really haven't made money in dollar terms. Well, you haven't made any money in the rest of the world for over a decade. The only place you've ever made money is in the US. And you're still, despite the correction, at the high, we had, I think, a seven sigma divergence. I think it was seven or it might have been five. I can't remember. Sorry. Uh, Between the US and the rest of the world in terms of the spread. Now, that was the first time we've ever had that since the 1970s, that the US had outperformed the rest of the world. And because uh, always you read the rest of the world that kind of outperformed the US, believe it or not, at the, at the highs, right? That divergence is still 3.7 standard deviations from the means. So I look at this and it's, you know, don't get me wrong, I think there are problems. I think there are problems in these debt markets, particularly in Europe and particularly in the UK. Um, I think their economic problems are really acute in Europe. It scares the shit out of me. And anyone who doesn't think, who thinks it's purely a, uh, an exchange rate issue facing U.S. corporations in terms of profitability is, is absolutely delusional. European consumer confidence has plumbed levels we have never seen since the series began in 30 years. It would tell you, if you look at it against... GDP that you're looking at a minus 8% year over year GDP recession. That's worse than COVID. That's worse than the sovereign crisis that they had in 2012, 2013. It's worse than the GFC. And do you think in an environment like that, Apple's going to sell 1,000 euro phones? Remember, this is a market of 300 million, billion, you know, million people, right? You're delusional. Right? So I look around and I think there's all sorts of risks, but I think the thing that's going to break, and that's what I fear, and I think it can break far quicker than David certainly suggested. I'd be interested to hear what Tommy thinks. But I fear it's U.S. equities, and I fear this majority of the move down may be over by the beginning of November, 
But this is beginning to look, and I've said this to you before, this looks like 2001, 2008, and the big hurt, the big pukes occurred over a three-month period in those. And that's what I fear we're on the cusp of. And if I'm right about some of the things that I'm seeing and the things I've just discovered about the vulnerability of the U.S. individual investor, and in particular, it's not really mom and pop, it's high net worth, you know, the, the, the guys who have the private bankers and the investment advisor, the RIAs and so on and so forth, I think it could come quite quickly. Julian, just listening to you speak, it kind of gives me pause to put it mildly. There are so many moving parts right now and just so many ways to lose. I mean, you, yes. I mean, you, you breezily go from you know, the European disaster to um, the bubble we still have in the U.S., we haven't even talked about Asia. Um, just in the interest of being inclusive in your tour de force, um, uh, any comments you want to throw? I mean, clearly the yen has captured everyone's attention. Um, this, this yield curve control thing with JGB stuck at 25 basis points. Uh, China can't get out of its own way. So uh, any, any thoughts you want to share on, on Asia? Um, so, look, I mean, I, I'm very worried by Japan. Um, I think, you know, I guess the positive is that they own most of their own debt. Um, I certainly don't think that um, we're going to see any change from Kuroda. I think he's, you know, he's going to stuck there for a while. I think the intervention we saw was very, in, in Dolly Yen was very much speed related. And I don't really think there's anything they can do to, you know, while you've got drivers like the relative expansion of the, of the Fed and the BOJ balance sheet, et cetera, et cetera, moving. I mean, it could, if we truly get an accelerative risk-off event, then I think maybe we could get, um, we could get an offsetting move uh, in the yen. But for me, it's not really where the money is, George, right? The money's here. We've sucked in the world's money for a decade. A decade. Since the dollar started to accelerate, you know, you've, you've given the perfect toothless trade to the rest of the world. Rising U.S. equity price and a strong dollar. An absolute no-brainer of a trade. And they've done it in trillions. So the risk is here. It's just the same as we did during the dot-com bubble. Rising dollar, money comes into the U.S., right? power. I mean, that's a, the definition of a bubble is a great story, right? And we've had, you know, all sorts of great stories, you know, in the equity market. You know, the dominance of these U.S. corporations, but it's no different from the dominance of the U.S. corporations that we had, you know, Microsoft, Cisco, you know, back in, in 2000. So the better the story, the better the, the price action. The more the liquidity, the better the price action. And good God, we've had a lot of liquidity. I mean, back in 2000, we had the dot-com bubble liquidity. Oh, sorry, the Y2K liquidity. And then you turbocharge that with a strong dollar because that just sucks in the rest of the world and you, and you cause what I call a big boy bubble. And that's what we've had. And that is in the process, I'm afraid, of unwinding. So I really, really think it's here. And so when I look at this and what will cause the Fed to panic, it is a rapid decline in 
U.S. equities. Right. So, Julian, um, you touched on housing a minute ago. Yeah. I'm going to throw a chart up in the nest in one second uh, while you're answering the question. I share your concerns on housing. Uh, we had uh, the great Ivy Zellman in this space uh, a couple months ago. Yep. And it just took one fantastic interview. I listened to that. Yeah, it just, it just took one's breath away to listen to the shenanigans that are going on, the uh, burgeoning uh, number of uh, percentage of contracts that are were failing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I fear that things have only gone from bad to worse. I'm trying to get a follow yep. from Ivy. Um, I'm going to throw a chart up. You you, you know the graph which shows U.S. Uh, housing affordability. It is the worst it's been since the mid-'80s. Yep. And um, there's added to that, uh, there's now stories going around. I'm sure you've read them. I know you wrote them. Talking now about how some people can't afford to move because, you know, they're, 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 they're sort of, you know, got their current mortgage at whatever, 3%. And now if you sell and you got to get another mortgage, it's going to be double the price and blah, blah, blah. Housing, to me, just looks like, a ticking time bomb and yep. it's not really being, you know, the, the, the mainstream media talking heads, they really don't talk about this. So you, you know, nicely uh, laid out why U S equities could be a disaster, but what about housing, Julian? So, so this has been, look, I, you know, you go back and you look at us GDP and housing starts and they tend to be extraordinarily heavily correlated, um, you know, outside periods of ex- extensive sort of fiscal expansion. So, you know, the Vietnam War, Reagan's, you know, defense build up um, and a little bit since the GFC because we've chucked all sorts of incentives at all sorts of stuff. But over history, housing and U.S. GDP are one in the same. And in fact, it was interesting, you know, I started a piece a couple of months ago when we looked at housing where we quoted an article, uh, an ad from the 2016 Super Bowl ad by Rocket Mortgage. And it sort of starts off with said, you know, wouldn't it be easy if you could get a, a mortgage by clicking just on your phone and then you had to buy stuff to fill your house. So you had to buy the mixer, the washing machine, and you had to buy that sofa with the hand-turned wooden legs. And wouldn't that guy who makes the hand-turned wooden legs suddenly make more money? And wouldn't it be nice if he could buy, get a mortgage easily and then he could go and buy his house? And you multiply across America, and what would that do? Because after all, isn't that what America does? And the answer is yes. That's what America does. We import people or have done historically. We build houses for them to live in and we sell them shit. It's that simple. That's what we do. And the problem is, is when things get a little frothy. So if you go and look at the equity market and you go and look at median house prices, certainly get something like the NYSE and and that, it's the same graph, literally, one for one. It's the same thing. So since the rate, we've pumped up the price of houses, and now suddenly we've stressed that by making mortgage costs ridiculously unaffordable. Now, that would be bad enough that you create an affordability issue. And don't get me wrong, George, I'm not talking about an 08-type credit bus because I don't think the risks are there quite. I think there's some risks elsewhere, but I don't think they're there. But I think it is possible that we have a building bust, right? A true old style, mid 70s, early 80s, early 90s 
from complete drop in construction activity. Okay? So how does that happen? Well, affordability is one, so you make it impossible for people to buy a new house or move, right? Because as you said, I mean, that 3% mortgage now is your, probably your greatest asset, right? The second thing you do is you build too many bloody houses, okay? So if you look at homes under completion, uh, you'll see that they're higher now in any period in the last 50-odd years, surprisingly. And that since the summer of COVID, when we started the Great Migration, they've actually risen 40%, George, 4-0, right? Because what builders did is they went, oh, look, everyone's moving. I need to go and build that house, house, and Ivy was fantastic, in Boise, Idaho, right? And so they have done that. And they built lots and lots of houses, very expensive houses, because it was very expensive to, to buy stuff during COVID. Labor force was very constrained. And now you have the greatest ever wave the, 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 of houses under completion meeting a collapsing rate of sale, new home sales. And when you look at those two on a ratio, you will see that the highest levels that we've ever seen in the past, where you look at the rate of change on a two-year rate of change, so from those COVID summer lows to now, the previous highs that we ever got were about like an 84% rate of change, 80, 84% rate of change. And I'm trying to look it up uh, as we speak. Julian, just lost you for a second. 84% rate of change in what variable? The relative, the relative move of houses under construction and yeah. sa versus sales, George. All yeah. right? Yep. So if you go back and you look at uh, 1973, we hit 670%. If you go back and look at 1980, we hit 80%. If you go and look at 91, another housing bust, you got to... 40%. You go and look at 08, so we know not a really ugly housing bust, you got to 77%. The rate of change currently is 184%. Whoa, 184%? That's not a typo? Wow. No. Wow. So the ratio of sales, new home sales to houses under construction, is at a level ladies and gentlemen, that we have not seen since 1970. And all those prior spikes were associated with ugly, bloody recessions. So I look at all of this, George, and I see a housing recession, not a finance-related ones, a contagion sort of thing, but a true housing, I will build no more new houses until costs drop, which could take a hell of a long time, or rates come down, right? A Increasing unemployment because the Fed has to right-size that and a crushing equity move because th that's all linked up by hyper-financialization. So I look at all this stuff and it just – I know when I look at Europe, I'm like, oh, my God, right? And then you look at Asia and you go, well, you know, if we're lucky, the Chinese stabilize this baby, right? And I just look at this thing and, I, and I'm, I'm sitting here, George, and I'm thinking – you know, I did it today. I was like, I, I really, you know, I've, I've made some money. We run a 
portfolio for an alpha capture platform. We made a lot of money in our S&P puts, which we had for a while. We put them on at 46. We took them all off in the summer. We rallied it up to 43. We doubled up there. And now, you know, there's sort of, we're in the money or getting close to being in the money. Uh, and, you know, we're trading around there. But I've been telling this to my colleagues because it's been very difficult to trade, George. I mean, I think people look at this thing and, you know, we've had comments like, you know, if you take the, the two-month view or the one-year view or the monthly view, well, that's great. Uh, you know, and Tommy knows, and I know, and others know on this call, that's bloody hard to trade that, right? Because in the, in the middle, you could get 5-10% moves, right? It's impossible to hold, right, from a risk management perspective, certainly if you're sitting at anything like a hedge fund, right? But, you know, the bond market's been one way, but it's very, very difficult to hold that view. And the temptation is because we've lived in a decade where you constantly take profits, right? I mean, it's never paid to play the breakouts, right? And so you, you get to the top of the range, you take your profit, and then it blows through, and you've got bugger, and there your entry level's the wrong level again, and you're selling lows, and you don't like that. So it's been very, very hard to trade. But when I take that, what's happening in the bond markets, and I look at what is going on in the equity market, I can't help but think you just need to keep pressing, Right, so I'm tempted at this point to double up and just roll my strikes down and for go for like 3,500 puts on the S&P or like 9,000 puts on the NASDAQ for DEC and just take that whole profit and not take it off the table, double up in the true way that brilliant macro traders in my experience have always made you know, in the old days, George, where you, you grew up in those days where macro guys would be like up five, down two, up six, up 60, up yeah. 100, yeah. right? Well, there aren't, there, there aren't too many of those true investors left nowadays, unfortunately. But I, I, No, I, but PA, I can do that. And I'm kind of looking at this and going, 100%, 100%. Do, I, do I think that we could just waterfall in the next two to three months? I mean, October's not exactly a great month, right? We're through that. We're down through levels on my moving averages on the, the NASDAQ, which have typically led to precipitous declines. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, because I, I look at housing and I think, I mean, I look at housing and you can, you can do a pretty decent chart where you take something like the, you know, the Home Builders ETF against the Dow. And you put it against mortgage rates, it's a really decent proxy. Now, it's trading roughly at like, let's say, 17. This is a ratio trade, right? So this isn't just balls to the It's trading at 17. It should be trading at 8. Yeah. Right? It should be trading at 8. Now, the thing is, is... These, these home builders just won't give up the ghost. I mean, Lenar came out and said, oh, this is all great. You know, look, we're managing to sell this week. No one noticed that their inventory of unsold homes jumped 24%. No. And I think we're about to see a Wiley Coyote moment because I got a very interesting anecdote from a friend of mine. He's a private banker, and he said, you know, I know this, you know, I've been looking at this. It's a bit frustrating. He said, but I just bought a home in Florida, and I bought it with a locked mortgage rate that I got back in April. And he said, I bought it like three weeks ago, and it was the last one. 
that ever, I look across my high net worth clients, they're all like locked in rates, they're all buying places, you know, and you get this three month lock, right? Well, he said all those three month locks are gone. And if you look at what rates did after April into May and June, they're just all accelerated away. So he said, I literally think this is the final gasp right here, right now. And in the next few months, we're going to see these housing numbers implode. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? I, I, I want to go slip my wrist. Right <laughs> so, all right, so, so Julian, um, zoom out a little bit, as our crypto maxi friends would say. Um, in terms of regime change, bigger picture, and I see yep. uh, good friend Jim Bianco showing up. Hopefully Jim will uh, be able to jump up here. Uh, and share hey, Jim. He's, he's in the audience. I hope he comes up here and um, invite him up to speak. I know he's kind of busy, but he said he would drop in. Um, so Julian, let's zoom out a little bit, and let's talk about the regime. And I'm going to throw this to you first, Julian, and then Jim. Because yep. um, I think I know you guys are kind of on the same side of the aisle on this. So looking beyond the very short term, and I'm, and I'm going to um, – what, what bigger picture, sort of the regime change, the idea that you know, the, the great moderation is over – um, in that, you know, one's more likely to want, we're going to be in a more volatile economic environment, stop yep. go, higher inflation, yada, yada, yada. And what that means for equity investors, because one of the features of the great moderation period the last few decades has always been you get the reflexive ease, more liquidity for everybody, yep. the bankers sp uh, spike the punch ball, blah, blah, blah. But no more excess liquidity for you, Miss Kathy Wood. I mean, th those days are, are gone and they are not coming back. What would you say to that, Julian? I would tend to agree. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we've got to this couple of things. I mean, if you look at the performance of a risk parity portfolio, right, the sort of kind of 60-40 model that we've all got used to, you know, it really started the performance in 98, right? Uh, when Greenspan came in with his put and he prioritized deflation or disinflation, I prefer to use really, it wasn't really deflation, disinflation, over inflation, it created a really tangential change to investing. So we all got very used to, uh, you know, bond and equity prices um, being negatively correlated. And, but prior to that, they didn't actually be that way. They used to both go down together. And there was a Bank of England chart that they did in a Bank Underground series that they write. Um, their sort of blog where they looked at the correlation between gilts and equity prices in the UK and it had never been negative ever for the preceding 230 years. And that's because central banks were fighting inflation, right? And in inflation, you don't prioritize equities, you prioritize bonds, right? So inflation rises, you can hike rates, right, to save the bond market, right? You don't care about the equity market. In deflation, you actually care about wealth because you're suddenly prioritizing equity performance over bonds, right? So you do things like QE, you do things like negative interest rates, right? And if that's changed, which I fear it has, and we've been writing about this for three years, I, I mean, you know, I think Zoltan's very good about writing stuff, but when he came out and he, and he wrote, you know, oh, war's inflationary and deglobalization is inflationary, then I, I, people started to cry, I was like, no shit Sherlock, right? This was written... You know, we wrote about this, it's 2018 and 2019. But there's another thing that I, I think is, is important. The Bank of England did a paper, a couple of fantastic titles where they managed to get 
Varshok's Venetians and 700 years worth of uh, bond market information into a single title. But they talked about, if you look at the price action of the bond market uh, over the last 700 years, and they talked about these extended periods of real rate depressions and where you had these periods of super low real rates. And what was remarkable, George, about every single one was not necessarily what triggered them, because we all tend to be bloody arrogant and think we're the most innovative generation ever. And I've heard this time and time again on CNBC from the talking heads. These companies deserve these valuations because this is the most innovative stuff we've ever seen. Really? Do you think penicillin was innovative? We don't think the steam engine was innovative. We don't think the clipper ship was innovative. We don't think the internal combustion engine was innovative, right? We tend to get caught very, like I said at the beginning, myopically focused on the here and now. So those are what typically ends up causing real rate depressions, that and together extensive bouts of globalization. Right? You can go back and look at the 1500s and periods of when war ended in Europe and you entered up these halcyon years, decades of, of sort of global or intra-European trade. But what ends them is most interesting because typically the unifying thing, and I think there were nine periods of, I might be wrong, it's either eight or nine, something like that, periods of these real rate depressions was a war and or a pandemic. And we've had, we've got both. So I think this period of super low real rates is over. And history would suggest it's over. And we've ticked all the boxes. And I look at demographics and they would suggest it's over. And I think we're in a very, very different world where equities are no longer prioritized and that really the battle that policymakers are going to have is with bond markets. And because that deals with the solvency of governments, they'll take that much more care seriously than they will give a shit about what Apple does. Julian, <laughs> you can give it a rest. I don't know if I can take any more. <laughs> <laughs> You're hurting me, Julian. you got to stop this. All right. So why, let's just uh, hold, hold that thought. So, again, we've been we had John Roke and then Julian Brigden, Tom Thornton. And now we're having our the presence graced by our good friend Jim Bianco. Um, no stranger to these rooms, Jim. I salute you. You've been you've been so right. Um, you know, you called you 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 called you called BS on the transitory narrative, the peaking narrative, the whole bit. Um, and so, Jim, um, we're eagerly waiting for your updated thoughts. Um, and I, I know you've been listening to Julian uh, the last few minutes, so. Uh, Come on in. Join the party. What's up, Jim? Yeah, hi, and thanks uh, for having me. And hello, Julian. It's good to hear from hello, you. Hello, mate. Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts. Of, I, I want to address a couple of things Julian said real fast, and then I've got some other thoughts. The first one is, remember, in a bear market, sentiment will go to apocalyptic or suicidal levels. I've heard constantly on Finder Finswit, oh, everybody hates the market. you got to buy it. No, it bottoms when everybody hates the market because their life is ruined. That's how you buy it. And, and so when you talk about doubling down, I get it. You double down because we're not there where, where people are saying, well, I guess I got to write it out. I guess I'm a long-term investor. When they say, I guess my life is wrecked, that's when it's actually at a bottom. That's where bear markets go to. And so I don't think we're quite there in terms of the apocalypse that we're, we're looking at. 
Now, as far as where I think it's going on in the market, let me start with September 13th. That was the CPI report. Uh, the CPI report, if you look at the way that the market was trading, it basically fell out of bed on that CPI report, and it hasn't done anything but go down ever since. And that report, I think, was a real shocker for everybody because it showed that the problem is core inflation. Yes, it's nice that crude oil prices are under 80 bucks. Yes, it's nice that we're going to see lower gasoline prices from here. And yes, that will be a depressant on overall um, inflation. But that's all we've got is basically gasoline. Gasoline's about 8% of the index. It's falling. The other 92% of the index is not falling. There is the rub. There is the problem. Because let me go to the Fed now real quick. I think within the Fed, there is an intellectual battle. On one side, you've got Lael Brainerd and the staff. And I think they are arguing this is still transitory inflation. This is a echo of the reopening of the economy. Inflation is either peaked or it will soon peak. In 18 to 24 months, it will be back near 2%. And this episode will be over. The Fed can't print ships. The Fed can't print people. They can't print oil. This is all a supply problem. There's that one side of the equation. So they're arguing that's where you get that argument about pivots and about the Fed backing off and all that stuff because they don't think that this is serious. And the other side, I think, is Powell. And I think Powell is of the opinion, this is my opinion of Powell, this is more persistent inflation. This is a bigger problem. This is a problem that might last more than one cycle. This is not raise rates, inflation craps out, problem over. That's the first cycle of inflation, and it will come back, and it will be more persistent. I think after that CPI report, the market is starting to start to think Powell might be more correct. That's why it's sold off. Now, why is Powell correct? I want to talk a bit about some of the stuff that Julian was just a try, uh, 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 discussing a, a minute ago about real rates. What kept inflation low for the last 30 years? Why did every economic expansion last 10 years? And this one is barely two and a half years old, and we might already be in recession again. And that is because we had low and stable inflation. Three things, really four things pushed inflation low and stable. That was the advent of technology and the efficiencies that it brings, and we still have that. We had the advent of cheap labor, and that we kept real wages down, and that helped to keep the price, cost of goods sold, very cheap. I will point everybody to yesterday's Wall Street Journal, Greg Ipp's story about the labor market. I'll summarize it for you. There is a societal change, a societal change in the way that people view work. That's the whole phrase, quiet quitting. That, if, you, if you're not familiar with the phrase, it means do the bare minimum just so you can continue to collect your paycheck. But don't go on any further than that. That was the great resignation before that. People have a different view on life. And it isn't about nose to the grindstone trying to get ahead in their career. Companies need workers. Workers don't want the jobs. So they're going to have to pay up. And that's why we have 5% wage growth. And remember, if, and we've had 5% wage growth consistently for about 18 months. If you have 5% wage growth, you can have 5% inflation. So cheap labor was the first one. That's gone. Cheap goods. Since in the last 25 years, 
the cumulative trade deficit with Asia to the United States, 25 years, has been $9 trillion. Six of that has been China. Three of that has been the rest of, of Asia. They have sent us trillions of dollars worth of cheap stuff. Well, that relationship is on the rocks right now. We passed the chips bill. We're bringing back semiconductors. We're sanctioning them. They're getting mad at us. It doesn't look like that relationship has got a long-term future. Oh, yes, China will still make stuff and they will still send it to us. But it might be under different circumstances and it might be under different rules as we move forward. And the last one is cheap energy. The largest energy producer by country, energy, all in energy, is Russia. And Russia is putting a squeeze on Europe. And look at what their stock markets are doing and the way that they're crumbling. The SOX 600 broke 400 today. It's at the same level it was in 2000. 22 years, no money been made in the stock market in uh, Europe right now. Uh, their, their bond markets are crumbling because they've got this inflation. They've got producer price numbers that no one understands. 35, 40% inflation on the producer level because of energy. So all of a sudden the energy part of it is gone. You no longer have cheap energy, you no longer have cheap goods, you no longer have cheap labor, you do still have innovative technology. Let's just say we still have that, but that's not gonna be enough to offset everything else. So the era of low stable inflation is over. That means the era of cheap real rates is over. That means the era of central banks, easy money pushing up markets is over. Now, let me be a little bit optimistic here. George, we're gonna go back to a stock picker market. We're gonna go back to, instead of buy SPY, wait for the Fed to print money, watch everything go up. Two, if we're in a period of change, and if we're in a period of restructuring, certain sectors and certain stocks will be winners. Certain sectors and certain stocks will be losers. And those that understand that process will do very, very well. The problem is most managers only understand long or short and whine that the Fed needs to print more money. That's the way that their, that's the way that their careers have gone for the last 10 years. I don't think that style is going to be the style anymore. So... This is an argument for somewhat optimism that we need to restructure and we might see some things win, other things lose. The last thing is, I know when I say that, everybody defaults, yes, some things are going to win and it's going to be robotics and automation. Well, now you're, we're going to go back to the same trope that everything comes around, new innovative technology. How about some things that win are going to be industrials, energy, basic materials and manufacturing? because we're going to have to make cheap stuff here or somewhere else other than China. We're going to have to figure out how to do it with cheap labor that was not here. And so these types of companies will roll, will roll back into vogue. So what I think we're seeing in the markets is this rotation that we're, we're changing regimes. And that's why when you have these regime shifts, you get a lot of volatility. Completely agree with Julian, that that really puts in the forefront of the markets, the bond market. It's like the 80s again. The bond market is everything. The Fed is focused on the bond market. The Fed has been telling you, you know, it, um, they're not as interested in what the stock market does. They're more interested in the bond market. Last thought for you. I'll take some questions if you've got any. Uh, Wednesday's press conference 
Jay Paul said two things. First of all, he identified the best measure of inflation was core PCE. Now, the cynic in me says, of course, he likes that one because it's the lowest measure. It has a 4.8% number, but let's just stick with that. It's got 4.8% year-over-year inflation. He then said that ultimately, the Fed's target is to get yields across the entire yield curve, across the entire yield curve, to positive. So what he just said was everything from the three-month bill, which is at 320, to the two-year note, which is at 415, all of that's got to get above core PCE, which is 480. So we've got a ways to go on interest rates. He wants all of them at a positive real yield, all of them above the core inflation rate. So if anybody's looking for relief in the interest rate market that will back off, okay, it's oversold, uh, maybe, excuse me, it's overbought, or, you know, there might be some um, wild volatility. Look at today, you had a big range in it. But beyond that, I don't think there's going to be any relief after that inflation number and after that statement that Paul said, they're looking to push rates a lot higher and the heat is going to stay. So those are kind of some of my thoughts. If you got any questions or anybody else wants to jump in. Yeah. So, um, so Jim, let me, let me ask you, that was brilliant. And I put uh, up in the nest, um, I've been in the same camp as you. I put up in the nest, your tweet from this afternoon. I'll just, I'll just read it. Um, for the crowd, if those who can't see it in the nest, and I 100% agree with this, uh, where you where you say, I think the interpretation of what is happening in markets is backward. The problem is that things are the problem is not that things are breaking. The problem is that they are not. Without serious signs of real trouble, yields are free to soar higher, which they are doing. This is crushing risk on markets. I couldn't agree with you more. There seems to be this this um, wishful thinking out there that we can, you know, have this softish landing, that we can go on this glide path of slow, just think, slow down things just enough so that the inflation, you know, the unemployment rate will only go up gradually. And, you know, over two or three years, we'll all live and happily ever after be puppy dogs and rainbows for everybody. History shows that never, ever, ever happens. And so I'm with you. I mean, until something breaks, rates can still go up so when i hear these talking heads going well you know the economy is fine and you know we're having you know airlines or planes are full the restaurants are full that's exactly the problem um so i don't know if you want to embellish that uh, but i couldn't agree with you more yeah i'll embellish it a couple of things yes that is the problem first of all how do you know something's broke call me when you see the two-year note down 40 basis points in a day then you know something has really broken bad and broken hard. We haven't seen anything like that. Because when something breaks, you then expect an emergency Fed meeting to deal with it. That's why rates would plummet, because that's the end of the rate hike cycle. If we don't have things break, if the airlines are full, if the restaurants are full, if, if Wall Street's 8% earnings growth for next year is right, I don't think it is, but if it's right, we're going to have 6 7% inflation next year. That is, the, that is the concern because the problem with this economy, with no longer having cheap labor, cheap goods, cheap energy, is the demand is too much for the current set of supply constraints that we have, and we keep having more inflation. So if your concern is higher rates are what's pummeling this market, then the only thing that's going to save it is going to be 
that we see something break to change the course of Fed policy. But we're not seeing anything break. Look at, if you want one chart to look at, look at unemployment claims over the last two months. They're going down. They're not going up. They're, you know, I hear people constantly say that the labor market's in trouble. Okay, I get that it may be in trouble somewhere in the future, but we just printed 300,000 jobs for the eighth month in a row, eight months in a row, 300,000 jobs. We got unemployment claims falling, and we have a 3.7% unemployment rate. That's not a broken rate labor market. Now, like I said, it may turn out to be broken in the future. The Fed is not going to stop because somebody told them that somewhere in 23, the labor market might turn south. They're more concerned about inflation. But I do want to emphasize again, this whole thing is going to turn, I think, you know, George, your mentor, your mentor, Peter Lynch, he's the type of person that would thrive in this kind of market because it's not about watching the index go up. It's about what it's about finding companies that actually can make money, can expand. And it's not about finding companies that can basically go to 300 PE with no earnings. I think that whole era ended with the pandemic and we're into this new era going to look a lot like the old eras of the 70s and 80s and so i want to emphasize this is not you know stick your head in the oven it's all over with this is that there is going to be opportunity but the opportunity is not going to be in double levered spies waiting for the fred to cut rates to zero that was the case from 2008 to 2020 but i don't think it's going to be the case anymore yeah jim i'm going to appeal to your prejudices it certainly gets in my jaw but those annoying commercials oh i invest in qqq okay like that's you know like qqq in this you just put it on autopilot and leave it alone that is so yesterday george um, thornton did i trigger you go ahead tommy hello hey guys it's tom um yeah. i don't know what happened with george no i'm here can you hear me hello anyway nice to um hear that jim that was great um Really, really superb overview. Can you guys hear me okay? George, can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah can, can, Tommy, can you hear me? Hello? Tommy, you're coming through. I can also hear George. Okay. I can, I can hear, hear everyone. I can hear both. I can hear everyone. Okay. Right, good. I, I okay. can't hear George for some reason. Okay. We, uh, yeah, he's here, he's here, Tommy. Um, Jim, I just wanted to add a couple of observations. Look, okay. I, we've used, we've used different George language. Off because he wants to hear a couple of things I'm seeing. Yeah. Um, well, there, there's a couple things as far I'm, I'm more tactical in the market right now, in the especially the equity markets. Uh, but I, I will say, uh, the the things when when you start to see other markets break. Uh, Julian told me a few days ago. He goes, "Watch the British gilts; they're absolutely going to break." And obviously, we saw 50 basis points today uh, on the five year. That was uh, pretty crazy. Um, the um, some some thoughts um, regarding the equity markets, uh, and 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 seriously with the bond markets, I'll I'll just say a couple things. Nothing's going to change until the trend changes, uh, even for the short term. So I, I can't make a, a call on that. And um, regarding the equity markets, there's a couple things that um, I'm I'm looking for an opportunity to buy some stuff. And I'm a bear as much as George is a bear, but I'm looking tactically. And there's a few things that why I have a hard time buying right now. Uh, I look at DeMarc indicators and on the S&P, it's on day nine of 13. On the NDX, it's on day 
10 of 13, but I'm starting to see a F load of individual stocks with exhaustion signals on the downside. Uh, and when I see large numbers happening either on the buy side or the sell side, uh, I take notice. Um, it's a power in numbers type of thing. So those are some things that I'm watching. Um, you know, the, the other thing, just some like internal indicators, um, the S&P had 30% new 52-week lows today. Um, as far as June, uh, it was at 43%. So there's still room to go there, and that could be next week. Uh, the percentage of stocks above the 20-day moving average is at 3%. The 50-day at 4%, and the, a couple other things. I haven't seen any capitulation in the market. The VIX has an upside DeMarc countdown on only on day 6 of 13, and it's nice that it's over 30% uh, or 30 uh, for the first time in a while. Uh, but I think you, you need to see this thing spike and get a little out of control. Uh, so, I, I mean, bottom line is I think it's, um, it's a place where people – are getting a little bit more scared. I'm getting a few calls, less calls that people are asking me what to buy. Uh, but here's the problem I have. And I, I'm like, I'm putting together a big buy list of things that my shopping list, but one of the things that I, I'm my concerns. Okay. Uh, it's pre-announcement season and I don't need to buy something and then get FedExed. I don't need that. Um, the jobs data on October 7th, just reiterating what Jim just said uh, the claims numbers have been excellent and we've had great numbers and jobs. And so I, I'm concerned that it's going to be a number that's going to stay very elevated. And that would probably spook the market. Um, then, you know, the CPI number, um, you know, I, I tend to think that it'll probably start to get into the sevens. And if people react positive to a seven print on, seven handle in the CPI, I think they're delusional because that's still huge. Uh, so I think 75 basis points is on tap. Then we have three third quarter earnings that are going to start. Uh, the one thing um, with the markets going down, it could have de-risked some of the negative earnings reports. We did have that in June. Um, things were down, slipped, moved a little higher, and then we got the you can't forget the old better than feared type earnings. Then we have uh, the November election, and that's the second week of November. And a week before is the Fed meeting, and one party is going to be very upset with Jay Powell. So my my view right now is that we're getting close to some sort of bounce. It could be next week. I don't think anyone should start buying until we start to see a little bit more. We see those DeMarc signals, and I'll put those on Twitter. When I see them, you'll see them. But that's basically what I'm watching. And the funny thing is, George is such a bear, and he's starting this ETF, which I think is going to be fantastic. But I'm going to have to, like, handcuff him and pull his nose and make sure that he just gets long a bunch of stuff. Because if we get oversold enough and we get a bounce, I want to see him get out of the gate uh, with some wins. And uh, George, I, I promise I will bang on you to just buy some stuff. And, and I, you love energy, so you're probably going to get a very good opportunity in energy. That's Tommy, all. Uh, Tommy, that's that's what friends are for. So I'm counting on you, man. 
Uh, Maybe you should just go hide all the pink tickets. We'll see. We're not starting till next Thursday. So, of course, we'll probably start right at the exact low uh, with my luck, but whatever. Um, Tommy, I had a couple of questions, if I may. Uh, It's Julian. Um, I've been looking at this, and I'm to me this looks like 2001 february uh march and it looks like 08 right where this thing starts to gather momentum we constantly look to buy the dips and rather than stopping it actually accelerates and one of the things that you know you're i'm a i've never quite understood the marks but i you know, like lots of things, I'm a jack of all trades and master of none, and you're definitively a master of DeMarks. But one of the things that I remember learning about DeMarks from when I covered the guys at Tudor was that Paul Tudor Jones used to like to use them, but he liked to use them for busted 13s. To him, that was the holy grail of the DeMarks signal. When it told you this thing should stop, and it didn't, and it accelerated. And he used to play those. And I want to ask you, if you go back and look at monthly and weekly charts from the 0809 period or that 2000-2001 period, where I think it's really the analogy we're in in analogous period is 2000-2001 because I think we had an equity bubble, particularly in US tech. Um, what is the possibility that we don't stop? Because I'm looking at some structural things which I think could trigger a wave of margin selling particularly from high net worth, which is the one sector of the market has yet to capitulate and their stock holdings, if you look at something like the AAII, are still you know, 64% allocation to equities. Typically, they're based at around 40 or in the 30s even. Um, what do you think the possibility is this thing doesn't stop in the next couple of weeks, Tommy, but keeps going through October and into early November? Tommy, if you can hear us, maybe you should leave and come back because... Uh, we can all hear each other. We just can't. I don't know that you're hearing us. Um, okay. Hopefully, Tommy will, will figure out the technology thing. Um, let's bring some others into the mix here. Hey, hey George, can I get yeah, one yeah. question in for Jim? Yeah, and go Julie? for it. Go for it, Newman. Go. All right. So, Jim, my question to you is pretty straightforward. Um, what do you think the odds are on stagflation for next year? Now, Jim, I'm going to leave that with you. And I want to ask Julian, I actually have to bail and deal with, and hang with my kids for a little bit. But um, so, Jim, that's the, the, in, the stagflation into 23 is the question for you. Julian, I wanted to just say thank you. I mean, my mind marinated more on this market in the last 15 minutes when you were chatting than in a long time. And I wanted to ask about, um, so, so, Jim, uh, in a minute, I'd love to hear your answer, Jim, and then Julian as well. So uh, I want to talk about Apple for two seconds. So I look at the holders of Apple, and I see Norgis Norg- Bank, Swiss National Bank, Japanese government pension. And you had mentioned thinking short-term, thinking long-term, and I wondered your thoughts with Apple here at 7.3 weight in the spoos and 25 times forward for a phone maker. You're saying you said that the bubble is the U.S. stock market, and I thought about that, and my light went off, that you just said the high net worth and retail crowd is still in there. Can you opine on Apple being the source of your double-down scenario? So those are two questions for the two guys. So, Jim, do you want to go first? No, you could go. Go ahead. All right, mate. So, um, look, I, I think, you know, if, I was listening to CNBC and the only, you know, I like to occasionally self-flagellate. Uh, but the, uh, 
the the one that show that I quite like uh, is the um, is the one with the traders on, you know, just after the close, and uh, you know, because these guys are traders, right? They're honest, and uh, they're not the analysts who just are there to sort of fluff up and, and impress them, uh, you know, investment banking. Uh, guys. So there was one of the guys was saying, look, you know, we've got this bifurcated market. We've got 490 stocks in the S&P 500 that have got PEs that are sort of recessionary 14 and so. And then we've got 10 or so with the PEs in the mid 20s. And obviously Apple is still one of them. It always amazes me that it's only really since COVID that Apple's traded at a premium to the uh, S&P. Actually, for most of the prior decade, it traded at a discount by about five. Um, so I, I think it's just this this momentum, uh, infatuation, you know, Hail Mary stock. Uh, and it's been, you know, because it's become big, uh, you know, and because of the, of the constituency of, and the way that the indexes have, have traded, it's just become bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think it, you cannot get an end to this until that cracks. Now, I think, you know, it's interesting and, you know, it is something that we know that because the, these foreign central banks have been buying very aggressively, uh, in part to offset the impact of QE. Um, you know, they have been buying U.S. stocks, right? So rather than, you know, buying U.S. bonds, which was always the case, right? Central banks would get dollar inflows, and then they'd recycle that into the bond market. That hasn't happened. The Fed's had to do that because the foreign central bank holdings have fallen. What they've done is they've recycled the money into the U.S. equity market. And that's why, you know, the whole world is invested in the U.S. equity market because we're running this huge current account deficit. Foreigners have funded it all, not by bonds, but by equities. And that just creates this inordinate vulnerability, right? This huge instability at the heart of the FX system and everything else. But, you know, we haven't cracked that yet because the dollar's still going up. So the question is, is do they start, you know, at some point to, now that their currencies are super weak and they're getting to painful type, type levels, do they reverse those? I don't think you'll see it from the SMB. I don't think you'll see it from the um, Norges Bank. Could you see it from the BOJ? I guess you could. Um, but it doesn't change my fundamental view that I think this is a this is a very very dangerous period. We are, you know, uh, the first speaker was talking about how he said, you know, we're getting into that crisis zone. We're definitively getting into that crisis zone. You know, it's just a question of what breaks. And that's, so Jim's exactly right. You know, the day that you know that something is broken, two-year yields have, have uh, just collapsed. I will make a couple of uh, observations just in regard to the Fed, because I did used to work for a policy consultancy group, which was, at its time was the premier policy consultancy group on the planet. George will know it, Medley Global Advisors. Most of my buddies who were in that space have gone up and set up their own gigs, somewhat similar space, whereas I went to more the macro side. What I could just add for a little bit of color for Jim, to Jim's comment is, uh, I would agree with him totally in terms of the division of where the Fed is. I will add a couple of observations. Firstly, Jay Powell is the most hawkish member of the FOMC is everything that I heard. Uh, in September, I was told that FOMC members, uh, no, sorry, uh, not in September, in, uh, at the end of last year, um, when he turned super hawkish, um, FOMC members walked in to the meeting and there was a manila folder on their desk with all the minutes from the Arthur Burns Fed uh, from the 70s. And uh, Jay Powell started off with saying, we will not be this Fed. Secondly, um, 
what their the one slight nuance I would add, and I would agree we don't know where these rates are going to stop growing because it is, I agree with Jim, totally enough that we couched it in different terms, but it is really about the labor market. I put it in aggregate demand terms. Jim talked about inflation terms. It's the same thing, essentially. Uh, they have to right-size this labor market, um, and um, that cannot be done without uh, an inordinate degree of pain. There is a hope. There is a hope that they will be able to do it without constantly having to jack up rates because there's only two ways you can address, essentially address inflation. You can use the green, you can use the Volcker approach, which, you know, the euphemism is he uh, burned down the house to cook dinner. So you take rates above headline inflation or uh, you can try and use what they are calling internally. And actually it's a policy that Greenspan pursued in the mid 90s, opportunistic disinflation. And the concept, and I would agree with Jim, that the idea is that you've got to try and take rates uh, above core PCE, uh, but they're going to try, going to try to do it uh, by giving it some time, so it becomes opportunistic. And this is why there's this been this huge pushback about the market's assumptions about rate cuts in 2023 and beyond, and why we're going to go to, I think as Jimmy said, that flat kind of curve uh, right across the curve. And the whole idea is you take rates to restrictive level, whatever that rate ends up being, it's really going to be whatever point the equity market cracks. Um, and then you hold them there. And this is the big thing that, and I agree with Jim, when this regime change, it's all about the bond market now, it's not about the equity market, and the equity investors do not understand. Since 08, every time something has cracked, the Fed has reversed policy. They've not only stopped hiking and stopped QTing, but they've QE'd and cut. Under opportunistic disinflation, they will hold rates at that level. And as growth and inflation falls, they will not cut. They will just sit there and allow gravity to do its work. So this idea... You know, sure, if we get down to 2,600 on the S&P, fine, you'll be blowing everything up and they may have to act. But if you gradually grind down to 34, okay, don't expect at 34 that the next stop is is 48 because they've QE'd again. No, 34, you sit there and you grind it out for months. And if it takes years, which you did in the 90s, for inflation and growth to come back to you, so be it. But this is a totally different regime than we've ever experienced. A question for both Julian with that, and I know Jim wants to respond to what you said, but I'll, I'll just push something back on you, and I'm sure Jim will have a response as well. What, you're ta- what I'm a believer of and what your scenario um, includes is the idea that real interest rates going forward are going to look much different than they have looking backwards. That yeah. Is- Money for everybody, and, and 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 rising real interest rates are absolute kryptonite for risk assets. And Correct. So the world you're talking about, you get rates up and you hold them there, just so everyone in the room understands what you're talking about. If you hold nominal rates at a certain level as inflation comes away, you're talking again about real rates going up and even increasing further. And so, you know, going back to again, when I think what Jim Bianco was talking about. Stock pickers market rotation. It's not everybody just buying yeah. long duration garbage. Um, you know, it's a matter. It, it, it's going to be a completely different investment environment than what we've seen in the last few decades of the great moderation. I mean, uh, would you agree with that, Julian? And, and I'd like your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I referenced this Bank of England paper about um, 
real rate depressions through you know, over the last 700 years. And their finding was that the average rise over the next 24 months from the lows was, I can't remember exactly, but it would end up with basically, and this is interesting, George, right? We don't go back to positive real yields, but we take, this is using 10 years because they, they use the dominant risk-free asset of the time, right? Because clearly we didn't have U.S. Treasuries back 700 years ago, but they were using things like, you know, uh, bills, of, um, bills of trade from Genoa was at the, you know, at the time in the 1400s, the dominant uh, risk-free asset. So they were using things like that to map it. It's fantastic bit of work. Uh, but they talk about essentially a correction which would get real 10-year yields back to minus 200 basis points. However, they do talk about a scenario where you get real yields back even higher, but even then that was still zero. So don't get me wrong, I think real yields are going to rise, but I am in a camp that I don't think there's any way, shape, or form that we could take positive real yields. But I'm still talking about significantly higher real yields than is currently the case. Right. Jim, let me, I just yeah. think there's too much leverage in the system to give us positive real yields, I'll be honest with you. Right? Yep. Oh, I want to circle back. Uh, Mark, can you uh, summarize your question again that you had for me specifically? I'll, I'll start there. Yeah, you had mentioned the uh, your, that, that you, you figured uh, in, in early part of 23, rate, inflation could be up in, the, I think you said, 6 and 7 area. I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on, are we looking at stagflation? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, as a bigger picture, I, I think Wall Street is focused on the wrong thing. You keep hearing the talking heads say, I think inflation's peaked, I think inflation's peaked. Well, it better, because if we have consistent 9% inflation, we are in a world of trouble. But the real question is not, has it peaked? It's where's it going? Is it going back to two? I don't think it's going back to two. I think it's going to go probably three or four. Now, that's a big deal because that means that the funds rate, when they get it to four, is neutral. It's, that's all it is, it's neutral. They've jacked it all the way up to four and they've only gotten it to neutral and the Fed eventually wants to go restrictive. The six or seven came in, if, if the talking heads are right, the restaurants are full, the planes are full, the companies are meeting earnings, th that means people have money and they wanna spend it and they're getting 5% wages, then we're gonna have five or 6% inflation. That's where that number came from. The three or four is if we get a slowdown. Five or six is if we don't get a slowdown um, is, is where that was. Now, to your question about stagflation, um, uh, I think we have it, right? Isn't that what we did in the first half of this year? 8% inflation and negative GDP for two, for two quarters in a row. Um, I, I think that is the, the, the absolute definition of it. So I think we've got it. And because we, um, you know, the question is, Will we continue to have it as we move forward from here? I think there's a good chance that we're going to. If you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP numbers, they are talking about, again, less than half a percent growth for the third quarter. So we got negative, negative 0.3, just to go with that number for right now. And then on top of that, we're looking at the idea that um, the inflation rate is going to stay, you know, you know, probably through the spring if it does fall, it, you know, you could still see sevens and sixes into early 23. So at least over the next several months, I think you're going to have something that looks like stagflation as generally accepted as it. You go longer than that. If we're in a period of below average growth and above uh, average inflation from what we've seen, 
yeah, I think we're going to see that too. That's going to make it a difficult environment on the macro, as George said, duration level. But again, they're smart, innovative. You know, so Julian, you were saying about people saying that they're smart, innovative. Yeah, they're smart, innovative people. They're in the manufacturing sector. They're in the industrial sector. They're in the basic material sector. And some of those companies are going to figure out how to navigate this environment. And you're going to want to own them. And some of these companies are going to just whine and scream and moan that they can't. And you're going to want to have nothing to do with them as opposed to just buying SPY. That's kind of my big theme right now is that it's going to be more of a market like the 70s and 80s and less of a market like it was from, you know, um, 98, excuse me, 2008 to 2020. So um, let me let me uh, I'd like to bring uh, our good friend Jackson up on stage. We've been talking here a lot about the last we've, some of us have repeatedly mentioned, you know, the restaurants full, the planes full. We didn't mention hotels, but Jackson's a friend of this room. Uh, he works in the hospitality industry, um, very close to the real estate market as well. So I'm sure some of his comments will be uh, extremely helpful in giving further uh, context to what we've been discussing here. Jackson, good to see you. What's on your mind, friend? Please unmute yourself. Good to see you guys. Great room. Thanks so much. Um, we're still in the same scenario. You know, nothing is translating in real terms. I posted a few charts recently um, from ST that I think does the best uh, in-house work um, from the hospitality sector. But again, I keep harping on occupancy doesn't mean profits. So the plane can be packed to the gills, but if they're not getting the nut for what they need for the ticket to get to the bottom line. So, you know, if you're running at 99% occupancy, and your clientele has changed, and the price per room average, the ADR that I continue to harp on, has went from $899 to $399. You're not making any money. You're just trading on volume, and that is garbage, and it is not translating. Um, so that's that's the frustrating part because I see all these pictures on here, and everybody says the same thing. Well, everywhere I go, you, you can't get a seat. You can't do this. You can't do that. But as I've alluded to, and I wanted to get Julian's uh, perspective on this, I feel like the laborer, especially in our sector, Julian, the laborer is running the show, meaning the housekeeper can now get 6 to 8 to $10 more an hour, and you're just hoping that she shows up. You know, the margins used to be great at breakfast. George alluded to it goes down to the Jersey Shore. The three ninety nine special is now twelve ninety nine. But you're paying the kitchen staff more. You're paying the busser more. Etc. So nothing is translating to the bottom line from a profit standpoint. Yeah, I just just I, look. I completely concur, um, and I'm sure Jim would too. I mean, if you stratify the labour market and you look at that sort of bottom echelon, which is your you know your housekeeper or whatever, I mean their pricing power is inordinate. I think some of it's you know in part if you look at the labour market, you, you'll see a disproportionate fallout of you know, women, older women, and those typically are things like the housekeepers. I think some of that's long COVID. I think some of that's like immigration policy. Um, I think some of that is exactly what uh, Jim alluded to as well, this sort of um, you uh, you only do the minimum to turn up. Right? You've, you've had this material uh, tangential change in your focus on what your work-life balance. And that's, you know, like I said, I mean, that's what, is typically associated with the end of pandemics, right? It's one of those things that is in, in itself structurally inflationary we've seen throughout history, right? You know, we like to think ourselves as, you know, 21st century human being is so radically different from anything before that, but that's absolutely bullshit. We're all motivated by the same underlying uh, desires. And the other thing that I would say is I, I totally agree on the profits. I think, 
um, you know, like I alluded to earlier, we have a very monopolistic, oligopolistic uh, economy, uh, with the exception of, of down in the sort of SME levels, where the competition is usually cutthroat and and uh, and the problem is, is these guys don't have the same sort of degree of pricing power, right? That an Amazon does. You just jack up your prime you know, rate or, uh, you know, Verizon does because there actually is no bloody competition in high-speed internet because they've carved up the country into their own little zones, right, and just jacks up your rates again. So I think, um, I would agree, I think, and I, and I actually, there's another analogy which I think is very interesting. I mean, if you look at what's going on in Europe, right, in the SME sector, um, you can see that this these power increases that these, some of these companies, and this is why desperately companies, uh, governments are trying to offset this, right? You had a slew in the last few months of every single sector from bloody pubs through to corner stores, bodegas, call them what you will, right, in the UK come out and say, if we do not get help, right, with these electricity bills, we are done. We are done. And understand, ladies and gentlemen, the vast majority of jobs are created in that SME, small, medium-sized enterprise sector of the economy. So I totally agree with you. I think that in many cases this um, profitability is illusory. Things are actually worse. But I do think the one thing that saved, in inverted commas, the equity market so far has been the pricing power of the big boys. And that has been helped by the stimulus the problem is, is as things start to deteriorate and you start to lose some of the smaller guys who don't have pricing power and you start to see some weakness in the labor, those dynamics will start to change. And there are already are signs that even the big boys are struggling now with some slight slowdown in the metrics. That's why you're seeing some of these prices receive data uh, in these PMIs starting to come down. So I think those dynamics are beginning to change. We're much, much worse in Europe, and I fear that's where we could, not to the same extent, but we could be going that way ultimately in the U.S. So, hey, Jackson, as long as we got you here, um, you always have really good intel. And I think, I don't want you to give away cards, put you on the spot, but I believe uh, you were back-channeling me. You were uh, paying attention to some uh, good housing information you've come into position this week. And I know your company's involved very much in the real estate market. And also, um you had some really good observations about what's happening to hotel rates, airline rates. So to Julian's point about things coming off the boil and pricing power starting to weaken a bit in hospitality, uh, is that in fact the case? And what are you seeing in the real estate market? Jackson? Yeah, 100%. I, and I've alluded to that before. The problem is, is that the clientele uh, has changed. So again, I mean, you're discounting to the extreme to pack the hotel full but the people that were you know wealthy enough to actually experience the experiences that we sell um they've already had their fun for and and they're in tune with what's going on etc so the clientele has changed and you're not seeing it translate so yes those discounts have came down um but you're again going up and i posted a few uh, tweets in the nest um about just real versus nominal. Again, I, I know Jim, Dr. Jim Walker and I wear everybody out with that, but the reason why everybody's using 2019, 2019 as their gauge to show where we are now is because 2021, we're nowhere near where we were. So yes, that was exorbitant. It was beyond belief in 2021 
Um, but they don't want to use that. They want to use comparables to 2019. And, and that's just dead ass wrong. Perfect. Um, thanks for that, Jackson. Uh, Albert, um, welcome. I think you had an interesting uh, uh, subject you want to discuss. Uh, please um, unmute yourself. Thank you, Albert. The floor is yours. Thanks, George. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a little anecdote. Um, I own a company that imports and sells home decor to major retailers like Burlington, Ross, TJX, Hobby Lobby, Walmart. Um, freight started getting crazy around August, September of 21. Um, but the orders that were shipping around then were booked in April, so the prices didn't reflect that. The, border, the orders that were booked in September shipped after Chinese New Year in February, and those prices at wholesale had the freight prices built into them. They hit the retail floor a month later, and immediately you started seeing sales slow down. Um, and at the same price, gas pr same time, gas prices started to go above four dollars here in New York. Um, and then on our weekly calls with all the buyers, they just started sounding really downbeat. Um, you know, and you know, uh, you know, things are slowing down. Maybe it's just because we had such a good 21. Um, but you know, as the weeks went by, it was more clear that it was, uh, pricing. Um, I, I know a lot of people know sale business and it was going, you know, it was everywhere. My father owns a, a company that does clothing, uh, and he ships a lot to Walmart. Um, and they stopped their shipments that were in June for fall clothing and they pushed out a full year. Um, so by the beginning of July, Burlington and Ross were telling us, you know, we booked these orders. Yes, but we have nowhere to put them. Not even that, you know, I don't want to take it because it's not selling at retail. Our warehouses are completely, completely full. We have nowhere to put the goods. Um, so you can't ship to us. Um, then around the first or second week of August, um, you could tell that the buyers were sounding a little less, you know, fatalist and, you know, they're kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and then in the last two weeks now, in the beginning of September, um, business got a, a, a lot better. We're starting to get orders again. Um, and then when I looked back and I, I tracked it against gas prices, you could see that there was a very high correlation of what was going on with end consumers and the gas prices. So now I'm asking you, what happens when Biden stops emptying the SBR to buy votes in November and gas prices are no longer, you know, WTI with a seven handle and you have WTI with a, over a hundred um, on November 9th. I don't know if uh, Jim or Tommy or Julian want to take that. Uh, we've had Dr. Nasa Haji, who's a big friend of this room. Uh, he's not here right now. Uh, maybe Javier can come up because he's forgotten more about energy and all of us put together. So let's see if I can get him up here. But I, um, we spoke with Dr. Nasa Haji um, repeatedly about this and some of us who are conspiracy theorists um totally on board with you what's implied by your question it's not just emptying the spr there's been a suggestion confirmed by by many that there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on to keep the or depress the oil price ahead of the elections and so i think your, your question's spot on um so um, George, i don't know sorry go ahead yeah I, i'll throw in one other thing too um the the, the chinese have zero covid there is huge demand destruction in China right now. Um, you've probably seen the videos on social media, just so everybody knows how it works in, in China. If there was one of a Beijing um, IKEA, 
authorities are in the Beijing Haikia and they basically grab some random customer and they give them a COVID test. And if one person turns positive, the doors of the store are locked. The hundreds of people that are in the store are stuck in there for days immediately. And the government will come and give you a bag of food. And um, if they forget, um, well, you're on a diet. And that's why you saw in those, those pictures that, you know, you had this mass stampede of people running over old people and children to get out of the store before they locked the doors. That's zero COVID in China. I want to get that point across. That is crushing oil demand in China. Um, the National Party Congress meets in two weeks, and the expectations are they're going to back off of zero COVID. You're going to unleash huge demand for oil if they unleash it. By the way, when is that? That's three weeks before the uh, midterms. It may not be enough to get the price of oil up by the first Tuesday in November, but it can unleash a massive rally in oil if we were to see that um, that type of uh, demand, uh, let's call it reconstruction, come back. So don't don't discount what's happening in China either. Jim, that's an excellent point. Very sympathetic to that point of view. And I want to bring Tommy Thornton back in here. Um, Tommy, I still retain a warm spot in my heart for energy stocks. But as the saying goes, there's your beliefs and there's your portfolio. And I have nothing on the sheets right now. Are we getting to the point where, Tommy, you think it might, given how schmice they've become, um, that it, so when the CTF starts on Thursday, I might want to start thinking about buying some energy stocks, Tommy? What are you thinking? Yeah, they certainly just got whacked. Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, we could see crude maybe touch a six handle briefly. I think that's a possibility. And if that happens, I think that you do want to buy energy stocks. And it's pretty um, simple, the ones you want to you want to start with and start with the one Warren Buffett's buying and then, um, you know, go, go through the list. I think they're all going to go together, though. They usually do. So you can buy any of the ETFs and the ones you know more specifically. I think we're close. At least I have something to buy. Um, does anyone? <laughs> I'm going to um... make you buy in video. <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tommy, friends don't let friends buy Nvidia. You know better than that. Mate, mate, you don't buy you don't buy Nvidia. If you go and look at it historically, and I've been tweeting this right, and you knew that it was it, everyone was long when I tweeted it at like you know wherever it was, just coming off the highs back in September. You buy Nvidia when the P is under twenty. It's still thirty four. Hundred percent. Hey Jackson, you I, got you want to? I do own a, a semiconductor, George. I do own uh, Intel right now i've started to buy it you're getting a nice dividend they're not going to cut the dividend and i'm very comfortable with the new ceo who's buying stock good idea hey jackson did you, did you have a follow-up jackson i just wanted to uh, follow up real quick on housing because i spent all week listening to ivy zellman at her summit i listen to every word she says like a cardiologist listens to a heartbeat <laughs> hold, on, hold on hold on hold on hold on we're gonna warning for the room Everyone pay close attention to what Jackson's about to say. We don't have Ivy here, but we got the next best thing. Jackson, say it slowly. Everyone's got to hear this. So as I was saying to you on the, on the, and I've got to run, unfortunately, but as I was saying to you on the back door, the entire, and I'd love Jim Bianco's point on this, the entire sector runs 
lives and dies on transactions. Well, nobody is transacting right now. And that's where we're getting into this problem. So I get that everybody wants prices to drop 50% at this. We're not going to have that kind of blow up. She stressed this before and she stressed it again um, during the summit. This is going to be an elongated squeeze. You know, it needs transactions, credits tighter. It doesn't matter if lumber goes sub 200. If nobody can get the, you know, get the deal, uh, so to speak, they're not going to be loading up on lumber to build. So, what, what, so the point of that being Jackson is going to be a cessation in new housing construction. Is that what you're saying? My point is, is that the entire sector is struggling because there's lack of transactions. So nobody's buying or selling. There's, there's, there's not enough activity to keep it going. So we're going to have the slow grind down. Yes, prices are going to come down, but they're not going to come down in the fashion that we saw in the GFC. And I think that's what everybody's waiting for. It's going to be an elongated, slow and easy, just grind and grind, grind lower. Um, and because of the lack of transactions. Well, Jackson, uh, <laughs> Cantro's in the third row. Uh, we all love him. He's always big on the role of housing in the economy because of the uh, ripple effects in other industries. If he can peel away from his daughters, maybe he can weigh in for a couple minutes. But thanks for that insight, Jackson. Neely, um, you follow the consumer really carefully. Um, are you triggered by anything you've heard here in the last hour, or is there anything you'd like to add? Neely, please unmute yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks, George. You know, it's interesting. Albert, thank you for coming up and sharing that perspective. I think it's similar to some of the confusion that's out there. You know, we advise um, in the boardroom. That's largely what we do. Was on Wall Street for 20 years, head of the consumer research practice at Piper Jaffray, now Piper Sandler, and uh, now have our own bespoke kind of advisory business. And you know, the number one question is, you know, will we or won't we head into recession? And on the, you know, uh, will we um, camp the people who think that we will, they are pointing to just kind of the choppiness and demand tied to the inflation numbers, but then just seeing this broader kind of slowing of demand and just broad, broadly more concerned about the duration of the elevation of inflation versus um, kind of a, a, a single spot number, which is kind of what Jim was saying, which I really appreciated that comment. The won't we camp is fully anchored. I mean, like fully anchored. We won't be in recession camp on the employment situation and how strong we are. And just like, it's impossible kind of to rock the labor markets is the perception. And when you see some of these conversations about like the choppiness a little bit in, um, you know, the housing market and et cetera, the, the two things that we think are just simply not being considered are this first and foremost, um, Oh, I don't know. Is did Julian? Did you want to say something? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I mad respect for that dude. Um, so the two things that I think are uh, questions that we could be asking would be if we have the fast rising federal U.S. deficit, is that going to create a situation where we will need to bridge the gap um, with taxation and what taxation might mean for? employment down the road. We're, we're watching that very, very, very carefully. And we think it's actually being relatively under discussed. Um, I can say more about that in just a minute. And the second piece is, um, <laughs> the second piece is around small business. I just simply think there's not enough conversation about the 32 million small businesses in the United States of America and how they might in some form or fashion be kind of the, the subprime of, you know, employers, if it were. 
we have 4 million EIDL loans coming due and starting to go into payment, um, repayment this October. They're low rate loans, no doubt. And they are, you know, long in duration, but you have small business, which has already been suffering and already indicating on the infib numbers that their expectation for earnings are like the lowest levels of what they've been going back to the pandemic pre the PPP loans being dispersed like when we were headed into shutdown, I mean, that's the level of sentiment they have on their earnings. And now we're going to layer on like one more kind of thing to their business while they're dealing with the rising costs. So I think we're a little concerned about um, what the job loss dynamic might occur in places that people aren't looking and small business might actually be part of that. So that's something that we're looking at. Just simply think there's not enough rhetoric about. Can I answer uh, about the uh, people who are saying no because of employment, you got to keep in mind, you can have a job and still have no available disposable income if you're paying five fifty for gas. Just because you have a job doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go out and buy all these discretionary items, which is something that I sell. 100%. Uh, if, I'm, if I may, I just just concur with you on the, the small business stuff. As I said, I am very worried. I think Europe's situation is far worse, but you really are seeing problems there. And some of those problems, while less intense, are manifest here in the US in terms of the cost of labor, the cost of energy, far less, but still acute. Um, and if you look at actually small business employment um, and you look at the ADP data, the ADP data is showing a very rapid decline in jobs growth uh, it's still growing just uh, among small businesses. So it totally echoes everything you said. Uh, these are the bedrock of uh, the U.S. economy in terms of employment. They're also something that the BLS, uh, who measures the non-farm payroll data, have really struggled over time to try and measure. They admitted it. You know, the Fed admitted you know, in their mere couple that they did post the global financial crisis that they didn't see and they couldn't measure the SME job losses coming through. Uh, Christ only knows why ADP don't try and ape what the BLS does and doesn't just launch their own survey because they literally count people in and out of the theatre. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you are starting to see some real pain uh, in the uh, small, small and medium-sized uh, firm sectors. That's where the slowdown is actually starting to manifest itself, not with the big boys. Julian, that's that's really insightful. Can I just ask you one thing? Um, I don't know if it's going to be out of order, out of sequence, but you kind of put this little cat amongst the pigeons an hour ago, talking about you had some theories to what's going to cause the U.S. retail investor to blow up. Um, would you care to share? Um, yeah, I, I, I can't quite go into too much detail because I haven't really uh, spent it to my client base yet, but um, I've had some phone calls over the last couple of weeks with um, buddies who are in the uh, high net worth space and um, we always think of you know if you're a high net worth person this is everyone you know let's say from you know small end probably five million liquid assets up right um, that you're really wealthy and you don't have a lot of debt well that's totally wrong these people have an awful lot of debt and there's a structure that's been pushed very heavily. Um, and conceptually, it's not, you know, I'm not talking about sort of ninja loans or anything like we had in the global financial crisis, but I'm talking about borrowing against underlying portfolios. And this has become, my understanding, pervasive. 
um, because it was super cheap financing. Uh, it enabled you to continue to hold the portfolio, not have to take tax you know, hits when you sold things to, to fund uh, your lifestyle. And some of the things in the last few years have really added to this. And so people are these surprises me, these you know, I'm a much more conservative person when it comes to this thing. But a lot of these high net worth individuals are living off essentially borrowed money against an underlying portfolio. Worked great, George, worked great, uh, while everything was going up. And this is this is bonds and stocks, right? But the the level of lending against these, well not you know, not in you two hundred times or anything, but the level of lending is um pretty high, actually surprisingly high. And um, it could be one of the reasons, and the fact that we've, you know, we had the summer bounce in risk assets, you know, bond yields fell, bonds rallied, um, and um, same with equities. And that kind of caused a little bit of a fire break because prior to that, things were getting a bit stressful. And then there's some other elements of the nature of which assets that some of these um, guys are invested in which means that uh, there's actually not as much liquidity there or accessible liquidity in these portfolios as as you would think. And so I fear there is a risk that when you look at things like the, and I know you do, George, the AAII allocation to equities, right, which is really... When you, when you analyze, especially individual investors, we know what that means. It means high net worth, right? Because the individual man on the street has no bloody investments in equities, right? So when you look at that, high allocation, why hasn't it dropped? Well, in part because their confidence hasn't dropped. Well, in part because, you know, you can go and look at, there's a Wall Street Journal article about the rich borrowing, um, you know, two months ago, because uh, it's a great time to buy dips, right? So they're borrowing against their portfolios to buy even more things and so on and so forth. Those dynamics are starting to change, and I fear between there's another liquidity demand on this portfolio group, which hasn't necessarily been considered, that I'm actually told that their actual access to liquidity now, without selling underlying assets, is becoming very, very tight. And if we break through new lows, you could get a cascade of underlying portfolio liquidation coming from this group. Julian, um, you send a shiver up my spine with that concept, and you've triggered me, my friend, because that touches into something else. We'll maybe open a Pandora's box here. But the word you use repeatedly is liquidity, and I've been very outspoken, you know, against the, um, the long-duration, you know, uh, 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 angel investing unicorns um private equity stuff etc and so you look at the likes for instance of uh, tiger global not just to pick on one but i will as a representative example and you know they sold down a lot they sold what they could which is liquid stuff the stuff that trades yep um so the facebook's and you know the googles all that kind of stuff and so just think about it and then also they're playing games with the marks but their portion of illiquids has actually been going up as the market goes down it was like and, Kathy Woods, right? Same exactly, thing. exactly. And you know, you know, Julie, you've been around long. Yeah, this works. The market comes for you eventually. You sell yep. what you can, okay? Right. And eventually, they come for you. And I'm afraid that what you just described with borrowings against um, stock portfolios for high net worth and the, and the and liquidity news tightening, 
um, as prices de- decline. You're seeing that you're seeing that writ large up and down um, the uh, investment landscape. And so, whether it's Tiger Global, there was an article. Whether it's it was a great thread. I put it in my in my uh, Twitter feed. Someone wrote a great piece about the Ivy League institutions and you know how they were up anywhere from thirty to fifty percent uh, in the prior fiscal year, you know, all on the back of you know soaring values in private equity and in, in, in their venture portfolios. And, you know, the valuations are, you want to use your imagination. You can, valuations are what you want them to be. You can just market whatever you want. But that movie's running, running in reverse now. And I think the whole sort of, um, and this is really going to open up Pandora's box, the endowment model um, where, you know, David Swenson of Yale pioneered it. Everyone followed it. Everyone wants to be just like Yale. And, you know, it's, as the saying goes, you know, well, what is it? What the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. These guys, these guys are now all stuck. And Correct. If you're right, and if Jim is right, and, I, and I'm casting my light lot with you, and which is, you know, it's not always going to be up and to the right number go up, and and and, and we're not going to spike the punch bowl with ever greater amounts of liquidity. These guys are stuck. These guys are stuck. And I think, I think, enlarging on you triggered me with this liquidity thing. I think you're going to see disastrous numbers coming out of endowments. Did you see Julian? You, you, you know, I know you're not European, you're British, but I'm sure, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure it didn't escape you. Maybe, Bianca, you saw this. Did you see the thing the other day that the Danish pension fund announced they had like a 35% loss in the first yeah. half of the year or something like that? Yeah. I mean, there's more yeah. where that came from. I mean, how, how would you like to be a pensioner? No, or, or, you know, someone asked me to put a question to you. I'm sure if you don't know the answer, Bianca will. Someone put a question up to me. It's a good one. You know, asking about the Swiss National Bank, where you know they owed three billion dollars worth of Tesla. Like, really? I mean, yeah. like, it's just, this is craziness. So, I don't know what part of that, Julian. I'm on a rant right now. I don't know what part of that triggers you. You want to respond to what's half crazy, totally crazy. But I think you're onto something. No, I just, I think, look, I think the, you know, the Danish thing that was striking, right? Because if you read the story, there, she spent years lobbying to be able to take a riskier portfolio. Because they felt like they were underperforming, and of course, end up buying the highs. But anyway, um, the, um, the 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 private equity thing is a really is a really really interesting thing, and we wrote something about this for um, for our clients. Um, and so I think the thing that people forget with private equity is it's kind of the gift that keeps taking when it goes wrong because. Um, when you commit to these private equity deals, you certainly if you know if you're a big endowment, right, or you know, or some public pension scheme, you had to commit at the highs to not only fund that program or portfolio that you get into, and by that I mean they have capital call rights on you for a number of years afterwards, right? I got a, had a couple of small private equity deals, and they're very small. You know, and, and I was like, oh, I got hit up for 20 grand the other day. And I was like, oh, where did that one come from? And then, you know, because you don't always think about it when you're signing up. And there was a friend who was doing it. And, and it's a fine little deal, I think. You know, but it's not very big. Um, you know, it's like 100 grand or something, right? But it was 20 grand I got asked for. I was like, Jesus, you know, that's not small. But if you're a college, um, you know, and you've got a reasonably sized endowment. And to you said, George, you know, it was... That's where it all started from. It all started on the college side. And these guys have massively, massively, massively outperformed in the private equity space. Right? They all wanted in. They've all piled in. We went to some inordinate, stupid number of private equity firms from you know, a handful 
20 years ago, you've all committed not only to, these, to your existing portfolio to fund it if you get capital calls, which given that there's no underlying liquidity and no one's, no one's running, raising any more money from equity issuance, you're having to fork up to keep these companies alive, right? So if you're some, you know, you've invested in some long duration stock and they're struggling now for liquidity and you can't raise any more equity, you're the private equity, you're on the hoof, right? But you're also pre-committed to deals that BlackRock and the, and the guys are doing, you know, over the next few years because that was the condition to getting in. It was such a hot market. And the point is, is as these things start to go south, these portfolios and these endowments have got really sort of two choices. Choice number one is they will just give away less money, which I think will happen. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking for full scholarship, you may not get it, right? Choice number two is they will allocate what money they do have, not out of choice, but they will be forced to put it more into the private equity space than they can do in the public markets. And worst comes to the worst, they may be forced to sell what they own in the public markets to fund their pre-commitments in the private equity space. And that's also an issue with high net worth. Hey, Julian, I think next time you come in one of my rooms, we have to have a trigger warning to women and children. This is like, this is not PP. This is like, I look, I, I'm with Jim. I think there are million, myriad of opportunities, okay, that are coming. I think it could probably be one of the most profitable environments for macro and for stock pickers. It's just the process in which you get there definitionally has to destroy a lot of wealth. I mean, I did a presentation at a, you know, a Real Vision conference, which Tommy was at uh, in uh, in California, and and I was doing this thing where I was I was saying, look, you know, I think commodities going to be great. I think the dollar is going to go down eventually. I think all these things are going to be good. I think there's a huge rotation coming down. Um, and uh, I, I, the title was a, uh, a a rotation of biblical proportions, and I said, you know, the last. The first become last, so U.S. tech becomes the worst performer, and the last, so resources and whatever, become first. And Tommy said, he looked around his room, and Tommy, I don't know if he's still on, but he said, he looked around this room, and I don't know, there's like two or three hundred people in there, and he goes, there were like five guys grinning from ear to ear. And the 95% of people, you, you, would, you looked at them and you thought that you were trying to sell their firstborn. Wow. Because they just weren't, position for this right and all you and i george are trying to do and all the stuff that i do you know with real vision and so on and so forth is aimed at trying to help people position for what we think is coming not what has been 100 percent. so julian just stay right there for a second because uh we got another sharp cookie my good friend howard has entered the stage and um i think he's got a good question for you howard the floor is yours Thank you, George. Uh, spaces are absolutely uh, priceless. And I want to thank John and Tommy and those who are uh, already gone. And of course, uh, Jim, and this is a question, I think, for Julian. Jim, you may want to get in there. Um, and Jimmy, contact me about growing up at Wrigley, would you? But um, my question is a follow on on something that I think is being missed in the conversation that uh, it basically adds to, to Neely's observation about EIDL, which is that we've got uh, approaching $3 trillion in floating rate 
corporate debt that of companies with weak balance sheets they couldn't issue um, bonds and um, it just seems like this lurking problem that we're also not discussing and it's several times larger than EIDL it's kind of like the next level above it and I just wonder what you see with that and what uh, what you can say about that Jim have you got anything you want to add um you know, as far as it, that market goes and the uh, floating rate market, a lot of that should be hedged in the swaps market so that they're, in theory, and that's the key word, not exposed to movements in interest rates. But we're going to find out here in the next quarter or two if they've done their job correctly and they've actually hedged themselves properly. But I think you're right that, in general, these rate rises – no one saw this coming. You know, no one saw this idea in January when we were at 70 basis points in the two-year note. Oh, yeah, before, you know, October 1st, we'd be at four and a quarter on it. You know, you would not have gotten a, you would not have gotten a market on that, kind of an, on that kind of a bid. And so it is a valid question or a valid concern that all these companies that had all of this uh, floating rate debt, uh, how exposed are they? They have a tool in the, the swaps market to protect themselves. But as we found out in 2008, you know, people started saying, oh, that's a waste of money to hedge yourself. You know, rates are never going to go up again. And they didn't. And then when credit blew out, they had all kinds of problems. But other than that, I, don't, I have not heard anything specific about that market. But it is somewhere to you know, definitely keep an eye on. I'm, I'm with Jim in terms of the, uh, you know, I was, I've looked at it as well on the, on the municipal side, right? It's quite a lot of municipal floating rate debt. My understanding is that these guys were forced in part because that's where the juice was in the trade for the banks and rate, because rates were so low to buy caps, so to buy protection. Um, I think in part what we may be seeing in some of this dislocation in the interest rate market is essentially the banks having to delta hedge these options which they sold because that's what a cap is. Uh, and that may account for some of this dislocation we're seeing in, in, in these bond markets. Um, but I think you raise an interesting specter of like further down the line when some of these deals roll up, how the hell do these companies finance themselves? I mean, I was looking at a, at a LNG company that was trying to raise money and LNG, it was, it was for investment. I think it was a gas liquefaction facility and they're not high credit, but they were, I think they offered up to like 12% and the deal didn't bloody get done. Well, if there should be a sure layup that, you know, building a liquefaction facility so that we can export, you know, gas to Europe, I can't think of what anything there would be at the moment. Um, and if that didn't get up, Christ only knows, you know, what some of these really crappy stories are going to get done. So I think, if that's what you're alluding to, I, I haven't got any metrics on it, but I think it's, it's going to be bad. I mean, the world, I think this is the thing that Jim and I talk about. The world is going to be very, very different. It's going to be a stock picker's um, world. And I remember a long time ago having a, a, a meeting. It's also a credit world. I had two meetings which has struck me about this when I've talked about these things. And as a macro guy, I don't always think in a macro way, a micro way. So there was one, I dealt with a guy who was running his portfolio, he was still, he was in his 70s, and he was running very active, and he said, we started talking about the late 60s, and he said, and if you look at the index, you didn't, you know, you had this period where you had these quite sharp drops uh, in 65, and I think in 60, 
no, 66, 67, and then in 70. And you really, if you'd have held your money, you didn't really make much money in that second half of the 60s, right? I think the overall return into the highs of 1970, right, 15% over a five-year period, prior to the previous five-year period where you made like 70 or 80%. And he said, ah, oh, you know, that relatively benign kind of environment, 15% gain, belays what was really going on under the surface because the churning, the equity rotation between the winners and losers was enormous. And in the same vein, I had a conversation with the European Credit Fund and they said, we can't wait till we get inflation. Okay, we can't wait because we're sick and tired of all this stuff just rising or all falling where we cannot prove our ability as as, uh, uh, credit investors, because if you get inflation and you think you have, for example, two companies, both which poor credit ratings, poor balance sheet. Okay, they both start off with a price of one. They're horrible credits, you would think, but one has pricing power and one doesn't. The one that has pricing power in a rising inflationary environment, they will pay down their debt and that stock will go from one to or that credit will go from one to two. And the one that doesn't have pricing power will go from one to zero. And in that environment, we can differentiate ourselves. So I truly agree, believe we're going into that environment. And what you just, that question you just asked us about, you know, funding and what all these things is, goes to the very heart of that issue. This is no longer a buy and hold environment. This is really do your bloody homework. Julian, that's spot on. Listen, um, we've been going at this for, uh, oh my gosh, two hours and 40 minutes. I always say I'm going to live these rooms to an hour and a half or two, but we've got such fantastic speakers and such fantastic listeners. The questions is just awesome. So I'm going to let Gnostic close it up with the last question, and um, we're going to be on our merry way. Hopefully we all have other things to do. Gnostic, my friend, uh, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. Uh, George, once I listen to these rooms, it always takes me a couple of hours to decompress afterwards. Uh, great rooms. I, Julian, what you just said, like I was trying to express yesterday uh, in George's room to sit down and say it's like stock pickers, stock pickers time coming up. But what you added to it was a public was a public versus private situation. And I do both. I do both public and private. And within the private realm, uh, you're completely right about cash calls. Um, the cash calls have been coming. Um, the downturns in them are causing renegotiation of cash calls and current holders and some of the private, some of the offers to pick up the private equity have, have been stunningly low relative to the current holders. Um, and that's not seen anywhere. Um, and it, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm participating in that simply because I can see some really good deals in situations, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm passing, I'm specifically striking out the cash call clause, uh, which the holder is nervous about because this increases the risk for other people. And I'm not the only one that's striking out the cash clause in the repurchase. Now, the 1031 rollovers exacerbate that because of leverage in the rollover and the ultimate exposure for tax liability is huge on top of that relative to the sale. So within the US market where we do some of this, it, it, it's really putting pressure on high net worth individuals who are, who are having to liquidate on it. My question to you is, as I'm seeing this occur, what is what, in your opinion, is the is the probability of this impacting the market sufficiently to have cash calls into the public market? So that's 
kind of what I was alluded to, uh, to what I'm writing, writing to my clients that, and around these loans around high net worth portfolios. And uh, what private equity does is just exacerbate that, right? Because if you're sitting, if you're a high net worth individual and you've kind of leveraged your, not leveraged, but you've taken out loans, because it isn't leverage, right? They don't give you more than 100%. So you've taken out a loan against your uh, equity or bond portfolio, right? You know, a lot of it, very, very wealthy people or very, very wealthy entities will have huge muni portfolios, right? And I've heard of LTVs of 90% against muni portfolios. Well, that was fine. It never went down, right? I mean, we've been in a bond bull market um, for 40 years. It never, it never went down or oh, dirty, right? Uh, well, it's gone down. And it's gone down a shitload recently. And so all of a sudden, you were hit with uh, margin calls. Um, and, uh, okay, fine. So you had a bit of liquidity. You could draw on a credit line. You could do on a bunch of stuff. Adding to that pain is a high proportion of your portfolio uh, is in private. And you're getting, called, you're getting cash calls on those, right? So this is all drawing on what liquidity you have access to. And like I alluded, to, well, like I said, you know, you always assume that if you're high net worth, you've shit loads of liquidity, right? You have, you know, cash, right? You can borrow as much as you want. Well, you've done it. And actually, the reality is you don't. In many cases, you're high net worth because you've been fully invested or overly fully invested because you may have borrowed to, to, to finance, right? And so your lifetime style may be funded from these loans that carried very low low levels. And I, my sense is, might be wrong, but my sense is we are hitting a crucial crunch time in terms of your ability to access more liquidity without liquidating. And because a lot of your portfolio is in private equity or in property, which is definitionally pretty illiquid, the strain on the public markets if that liquidity call keeps continuing, the only place you'll have to go is you'll have to go and hit the bid in your Apple stock. That's that's my concern, yes. And the question is, within the real estate market on a 1031 rollover, you've exacerbated that because if you if you eventually have to sell that real estate and you can't roll it over, you're stuck with the tax bill piled on top yeah. of it, which only compounds it. Oh, boy. Yeah. Gnostic. <laughs> I think this is dangerous having uh, Howard, Julian, and you together. This is just, it's my kind of room, guys. Loving it. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, right. I'm George, there's going to be opportunities. There's going to be opportunities. Please oh, don't yeah. slit your wrist. But just make sure you have the ability to buy the dip. And the ability to buy the dip means you either have cash or you're short right now. Right, or you have vol, rather. You have vol. And Julian, Julian, I'm glad. Just for just for a fun one, George. There's a gentleman named um, Rick Rick Rule who does high high risk investments into the the um, resource areas. And one of the comments about Rick is uh, by the companies he finances is that he's a vulture sitting on the phone lines waiting to devour you at your moment of greatest need when your stock is the cheapest. And essentially what Julian's talking about is being that vulture on the phone lines and waiting until, you know, the carcasses are almost dead in order to sit down and refund them. And these are the investment opportunities 
that are going to be waiting and they are huge. And it's kind of what I was trying to say yesterday about this becoming a stock picker's market of a phenomenal basis, not necessarily the bottom or, or picking the bottom. That, that was an implication I wasn't trying to make, but the, the, the purchasing opportunities here in companies that are good but distressed is going to be phenomenal. And Julian, thank you very much for the presentation. Pleasure, yeah, sir. Thank you. Know, you. 100%. I'm just going to close it on this note. I haven't used this line for a while, but you guys remember from a few months back. I can't remember who I stole the quote from. Um, and that was, you know, in, the, in, in a bull market, the hardest thing to do is to stay in. And in a bear market, the hardest thing to do is to stay out. And the only way you're going to have the balance sheet and the cash to be buying, be that vulture on the phone lines, Nasik, as you're saying, is having some cash. And so if you're a professional, such as yourself or Julian, that's fine. You can be short on myself. Being short's not for everybody. But please, everyone in the room, you know, I've, I've said this once. I've said it numerous times in the recent weeks. Sell is not a four-letter word. Um, if, you, if you find yourself looking at the screens on days like today a bit nervously, uh, I think it was, it, it was a Julian, was it uh, the Rothschilds? I can't remember who said it. Sell to the point of sleep. Um, there's nothing wrong with holding cash. And, um, you know, the reason vulture investors, the reason Warren Buffett, value investors like Warren Buffett or Howard Marks and others make money is because they have the financial wherewithal, they have the financial capacity, the balance sheet to be able to buy, um, when, when the chips are down. And if you're fully invested and you're on your back foot and you're getting margin calls as the market goes down, you don't have, you don't have that ability. So please have some cash. Um, you know, in, in a market something to the right, cash is a liability. That's why, um, you know, you look at cash levels for funds writ large over the last couple of decades, they've inexorably gone from the upper left to the lower right. But cash is an offensive asset allocation decision. It may sound boring, but it, it's actually in holding the cash as markets decline. That's how you're creating the value. I know it's, it's, it's antithetical to the rules of engagement we've been operating under the last few decades, but that's how you make money in a bear market. And so Julian um, and, and Nasik, thank you for driving that point home. All right. Two hours and 48 minutes. Enough. I'm, I'm calling, I'm closing this room. Julian, <laughs> we've got to do this again, man. This is just unbelievable. I, 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 I think the last time we had you we together was in early July and it was just phenomenal. Um, and we did one a couple months earlier. You're always welcome back. This is fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as, as I have and you've learned. We've got some really smart cookies in this room. I want to thank you, Julian. I see Jim is gone. John Roke is gone. Tom Thornton's gone. This has just been a phenomenal room. So, Julian, I hope to come back again. Uh, this has been fantastic. And uh, I wish everyone a good day and have a terrific weekend. Cheers, George. Thanks. Take care. Be well. Take good night, everyone. Bye bye.